In a perfect world, there would be no villains, no conspicuous manifestations of hate. Athletic excellence would be applauded. Sportsmanship would be the rule. Our heroes would remain heroes forever. If life were fair, then this legend would be lauded in his pursuit of an historic fifth World Wrestling Federation championship. Instead, he's a fallen idol, America's public enemy number one. The respect abandoned, the legacy bludgeoned and spat upon by a society he feels condones defiance and perpetuates hate. If life were fair, then this mighty champion, this survivor of deception and conqueror of all earthly hells, would surely revel in the championship spotlight. The bright lights wouldn't singe his aura, illuminating a dark, horrifying secret from a distant past. And if life were fair, then this man might still be champion, dancing, flying, showcasing his extraordinary talents to legions of fans. He wouldn't be an athlete betrayed by an unwilling knee, a man surrendering a boyhood dream to search for the lost smile of youth. Is it fair that tonight, even in victory, this champion will be haunted by personal demons whose voices cry out from the dark? Is it fair that tonight this man may rewrite history, yet still incur the wrath of a hostile and unappreciative nation? And is it fair that tonight's special referee is a despised enemy of the challenger? Will vengeance flow ruinous from his biased heart, ensuring that tonight will be the last night Bret Hart ever wrestles in this country again? Life isn't fair, but whoever said it would be. And now, Stridex presents WWF SummerSlam, Heart and Soul. Welcome once again to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler and... Oh, let me start again. <laughs> not prepared today. Welcome once again to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler and as always, we are recording the show. That's the wrong episode. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the script for the wrong episode. About a week ago. Two weeks ago, in fact. Wow. <laughs> Welcome once more to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler, and today we begin our SummerSlam season, where we'll be bringing you three editions of the... God! Fuck, and hell, this is the worst I've ever been. No, it's not. You've been far worse. <laughs> See, you like guest. behind the curtain now. I know what goes on beforehand. We've got a guest today, old man. We've got to be really good. So like the Beatles when Billy Preston joined them. They all started to behave. Welcome once more to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm Ben Spindler, and today we begin our SummerSlam season, where we'll be bringing you three editions of the traditional August pay-per-view over the next three weeks, starting today with the 1997 event. Our regular co-host Tom Smith is still on a break, but we have drafted in another able replacement who will be offering up their perspective, and we'll get to him in just a moment. Meanwhile, old man Sam Carey is here with us, as you might imagine, after the assurances he gave us all last week, although he was running ever so slightly late to this recording, so we did have a little bit of a panic that he'd be a no-show. Old man, how are you today? I'm oh, very good, thank you. I mean, it's an exciting time for the random wrestling review, because summer's here. And I'm ready to get hot, so I've got my towel in my lotion, and that's actually why I was late. 
I was applying my suntan lotion because I like to bathe nude. So I had to get it in all the crevices, down the foreskin, done. <laughs> <laughs> down the foreskin. Oh, no. Uh, quickly moving swiftly on today we are joined by James Truepenny whose regular contributions to the wrestling conversation are via the podcast that is named after him and a variety of different wrestling publications James welcome to the show hello and I'm I'm glad to join you on this wonderful slice of weekly family entertainment <laughs> yes I'm very glad to be here because this is one of my favorite wrestling podcasts and to be issued an invite to come and join you is a great honor, sir. I appreciate it greatly. Well, we're, we're looking for a permanent replacement for Tom, to be honest, because it, it was him back. So uh, this is your audition, basically. So uh, good luck. Um, and to start with, um, we did this with Matt last week, so I figured we ought to do it with yourself as well. Just for the listeners who perhaps aren't aware of, of your work, give us a little bit of an overview of your interest in wrestling. When you first got into wrestling, and I can't imagine there are many, but if there are any blind spots you have in terms of your wrestling knowledge. Blind spots in my wrestling knowledge. Well, I I was a wrestling fan because my mom and dad were wrestling fans, and I I got into wrestling in the as soon as I was able to sit in front of a television at four o'clock on a Saturday afternoon to watch World of Sport Wrestling. So I've been a fan for forty odd years, and um, I've watched pretty much everything and every style of wrestling, and then. Uh, your good self plucked me out of um, forum obscurity to write for WrestleTalk TV about seven years ago and then very kindly gave me a podcast and named it after me. And then I went and got kind of work elsewhere with FSM and with Total Wrestling and with Steel Chair Wrestling and other publications as well. And as far as holes in my knowledge, Modern lucha evades me. I like the bright, happy colours and, and the action and stuff, but I haven't sat down and watched enough lucha lately to be really into it again like I was back at this time period that we're talking about today. So I, I kind of want to watch more lucha. I'm kind of in a mood for lucha this summer. It could be my lucha summer, if you will. Oh, lovely. Well, there won't be any of that bollocks on this show, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and I actually thought your, uh, I thought this was quite an appropriate uh, show for us to be covering today, SummerSlam 97, because I'm assuming that this might be one of your lesser kind of period, not periods, but, you know, areas of knowledge just in general, because you yeah. are famously not really a WWE watcher. <laughs> no, I'm not. This is probably, I did watch this show at the time. It was the Monday Night Wars, and I was uh, kind of my uh, peak interest in wrestling in my youth, because it was... Monday Night Raw and it was Monday Nitro and my mum and dad were still really into it at this point so we were all watching it was the family thing to watch and we'd watch this this would have been probably Bank Holiday Weekend I think so we would have watched it on the Monday or the Monday after work if it was a work day so I watched it at the time mm. um, it was after this era where things started to drift away from me for the WWE and I haven't really watched it since probably around about 2001 on a regular basis 2002 I would think after the Monday Night Wars, I just kind of went away from wrestling for a while. But also, it just when I came back, it was like, this isn't something I want to watch anymore. I want to watch other stuff. So I watched other stuff. But yes, this is this this brought back a lot of memories and uh, intrigued me as to some of the content. But it was a fun show to watch. Good stuff. Now, before we carry on any further, I also want to get 
the latest entry into the Sting discussion because he's not on the show. So we didn't have any other opportunity to talk about him. But to be honest, so we've been exploring Sting as part of this podcast. I think this might be the narrative sure. of this podcast is, <laughs> is our opinion on Sting. And I've been in the middle for a very long time. I've never felt like he really matches up to the reputation and the star level that perhaps he had attained during his career. Old Man and Tom have, have made their uh, opinions quite clear, uh, as Old Man just did a moment ago. And even last week when we had Matt on the show, he too was not very impressed with Sting. So I am now banking on you, James, because I previously thought Matt would be the guy who would bring the other side of the argument to the table. <laughs> I am now looking to you, James, to provide that opinion on Sting. Um, what's your thoughts? He's the icon that is Sting, obviously. Um, honestly, I watched him on AEW this week um, just doing a little spot with Orange Cassidy. And it was like they just kicked each other in an Orange Cassidy style. And I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. It's incredibly insider and really bad for wrestling. But it was like, you can't get away with that unless you're a guy who's done everything and you can get away with it and not look silly. So, I mean, I was really interesting as a wrestler when I first saw him in 1989. And I kind of loved everything Funnily enough, up until the NWO sting, and then I was like, oh, this is a bit dark for me. I'm not that keen on this. But obviously, clearly, it was good for him as he became like the biggest star in the industry. But yeah, I think he's worth the price of admission myself. I quite like Sting. He's quite good. Oh, man, your response? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's wrong. <laughs> because evidently, as we've heard from James's wrestling viewing past, I am the authority on Sting having watched at least six matches with him in. <laughs> I mean, I think, but no, it's good to hear someone say something different to what I've been chiming on about. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I don't really care enough about Sting to go back and be proved wrong. So I'll just stick <laughs> with what I think. Well, we've still probably, we're probably still going to see many, many matches of his in the future. I would just like to add that I also thought the thing with Orange Cassidy was very, very good on AEW last week. So... And that, I say last week, it won't be last week when the t- by the time this goes out, it'll be three weeks ago and everyone will have forgotten about it. But <laughs> I thought it was pretty good, too. Now, we have a packed show. Um, we really should probably move oh, on. We've we got a packed show today. In addition to SummerSlam 1987, which we'll be covering, we also have the game, which we'll be contesting and James will be in Tom's place. Um, I will be hosting that one this week. And not only that, but we have an update on the top 10 and bottom 10 shows we've covered on this podcast, because today we're on episode 30 of this very show. We are trying to do that every 10 episodes give everyone an update on where we are in terms of the league table so we've got all kinds of stuff to go before we do go any further just a reminder to give us a follow on twitter instagram or facebook we can be found at rwr pod uk and it occurred to me to mention that this podcast is available pretty much anywhere you get your podcast not just apple and spotify so if there's a better way for you to listen to us than the one you're currently using then you should be covered go and find it it's, it'll yeah. be somewhere that you like well so or- if, if the listener would like, they can download them on all platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. every single one, just yeah. download them. They'd be lovely. Lovely old job. Be absolutely lovely. So, SummerSlam 1997. What were our uh, expectations going into the show, old man? I'm going to start with you. I thought I'd watch this as we get into the first match. I don't think I've ever watched this. Wow. Which blew my mind. So I was. Very excited by this. I was looking forward to it because obviously you know from the um the picture on the on the network, I know what it's going to be in the main event, and I I knew that anyway. 
but I was I was looking forward to this one. And I, I've always liked SummerSlam, even the shit ones, of which there are many. I've always still quite like them, and I always look forward to them. In recent years, probably misjudged excitement, to be honest. But yeah, I was good. I was good to go. And undoubtedly, you're looking forward to this year's because you get to see what is likely to be an absolute clash of the titans as Bobby Lashley faces Bill Goldberg. I don't watch that much WWE anymore. Really, I don't really watch that much wrestling anymore, aside from what we cover. But what I've seen of Robert Lashley, he's really good. And he's really got this like little almighty character quite down for what he needs to do. And now they're going to serve him up to, I mean, I'm in no position at all. But I think Goldberg's 55, I think. He, when he come out on Raw, which will be now a month ago when people are listening to this, he didn't look in particularly good shape. It, Felt like last time he was in when they evidently called him about a week before and said, Bill, can you come in and uh, work a little programme with someone? And he's like, oh, I've really been in the gym properly. Like, I go every now and then, like kind of like everyone does, kind of pops in once a week. And then he's going to have to go and go up against the old lashes. And I just don't think it's going to be very good for anyone involved, okay. to be honest. I'm going to have to pick you up on something there. Goes in the gym every now and again like everyone does. I, I What? <laughs> <laughs> Well, just like you not in my experience, of, not in my wow. experience. <laughs> Walks past the gym every now and then. Fair enough. Well, yeah. to be honest, I can't even say I've done that recently. The last eighteen months, everyone's been in lockdown, so uh, <laughs> not really even done that. Uh, James, what were your expectations going? And obviously, having known that you've already seen it before, but um, I mean, yeah, I'd seen it like twenty-four years ago, and I was wondering if it was going to hold up to like modern wrestling standards and realized it was a lot better than some modern wrestling is because <laughs> it made sense and things happened in an order and there was a story that was going to come after it and there was a story that preceded things and I must admit that I tend to skip a lot of stuff on non-pay-per-views like interviews because they bore me because I want to get to the match and I think I watched this purposefully three hours full straight. Didn't I watched it early today, day off today. So I just watched it all the way through. I watched the whole show. I watched all the interviews. I watched all the segments. And it was like, I haven't done that with a pay-per-view for a long time. And I was entertained thoroughly for three hours, which isn't something that necessarily happens with a modern show, if that makes sense. As well, it's like, you know, I'm used to Japanese pay-per-views and there's no interval, is there, in this? That's, that was one thing that threw me. Like, you know, I, was, I, I, I had no break where I could listen to Jushin Liger battle on about something in Japanese whilst I went and made a cup of coffee. So, you know, at least I could pause it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but the thing is also, and the good thing is it wasn't like 15 hours long as well, which uh, <laughs> oftentimes I find the Japanese shows tend to be very long sometimes. The one thing with COVID is they've got it down to two and a half hours tight now because they can't put any more people on the show. So that's improved that situation. <laughs> So in terms of my thoughts on it, so I was really looking forward to this going in. Uh, it's obviously a show that I remember. It's from a very, I think, a really fascinating time. I think everything from this sort of four or five months prior to the Montreal Screwjob is fascinating in terms of just the industry and what's about to happen and where everything goes after that point. But also there was a, it was actually a post you, I think you retweeted James recently about progress wrestling where someone had said oh um progress isn't as good as it used to be or, or when it was when it was really popular and I was thinking I don't think any wrestling show is hits its peak at the same time as it hits its peak of popularity like I don't I feel like its quality is always hits a peak before the peak of popularity and that's not 
exactly what happened here. But in 1997, WWE were, were putting forward some excellent television, some really good wrestling shows. And they were going quite unnoticed by lots of people because WWE was winning the Monday Night War and was doing so well with its its product. So I, I find this a really interesting year anyway, because I think that the quality is generally really high, but doesn't perhaps get the same credit as as what would come in the next few years on WWE television. So interesting time for me. And I was I was looking forward to watching this. The show itself starts with the national anthem being played. Didn't really understand why, though. They don't usually do this. Why Why did they do this here? Is it because of the, the hearts and the Canadian thing? Is that is that what we think? I would think I, so, yeah. Yeah, or just weird. And they just thought, no, oh, why not? Well, I mean, they're the, back in New Jersey for the first time ever. But, like, oh. I, I don't know. Well, it's not to say first time ever, but first time for a long time, as we find out later in the show. But... So maybe they're just trying to, you know, big it up for the New Jersey audience that, you, you know, they've sold out. There's 20,000 people in the arena. We're going to try and make this as grand an occasion as we possibly can. And it, SummerSlam is, at the time was their second biggest show of the year. Mm. With the summer WrestleMania. It was the things where stuff happened. So I guess they're trying to give it as much pomp and circumstance as they could. Yeah, you just reminded me of that awful bit that comes later on. We'll get to it, but oh. God. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful moment, I think. A really well-deserved and well-earned, morally correct thing to do, I think. Let's come to that when we get there. Let's not uh, let's not shoot our loads too early. We then get the video package to begin the show. So the national anthem, we go straight into the arena, the national anthem kicks in. A guy in the crowd salutes to someone. And then th- there's a video intro uh, package which I've subtitled, I've titled If Life Were Fair, because it's very, it's very story based. This is I really like this. This is this is excellent. Yeah, I think I think there was there was kind of a fashion for this within WWF. And you still see it now, a lot of like impact pay-per-views and the, the, the big opening story monologue does happen in impact more than anywhere else. I think it, it does set the tone and it makes things seem slick and professional. And, you know, it's a different way of presenting wrestling that was kind of Vince's calling card I think you know you look back the way he's presented wrestling down the years is very much his kind of his own vision of what wrestling should be and that fits very much into that mold for me yeah and it also like when we've talked about this on the podcast before I like the opening video doesn't necessarily big up any of the undercard apart from the main event but it adds so much importance to the main so much importance to the main event that you can't help but just be absolutely gagging for the show. I couldn't wait to get to the main event. Couldn't wait for it because you've got arguably three of the best WWF guys of all time involved in the main event. And then you get the pyro and then you see what's around the ring. I'm excited, lads. <laughs> I'm bloody excited. I'm I'm edging at this point. I, I watched this uh, watched this last week. I think he mentioned about us shooting our loads early. I'd already had to mop up three times at this point. Um, (laughs) yeah but it was it was a case of where i thought like i could actually title this intro package just because it told such Mm. a great and it 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 kind of gave you a theme to the pay-per-view and everything i was just like because it did speak a bit about austin and owen hart i think it also spoke about uh, mankind and triple h match coming up and it kind of just but it it had a thread all the way through them which i just thought that is lovely that is just that's that is some art there this is this is wrestling this is where wrestling doesn't get much better in the sense of something that the non-wrestlers have come up with <laughs> that they put on the, on the show and is actually really good. That doesn't happen very often in wrestling. So when it does happen, you really need to call it out, I think. Yeah. 
So our commentary team for the evening is Vince McMahon, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler. An interesting uh, trio here. We obviously previously covered King of the Ring 96, where Vince and Jim Ross were, were joined by Owen Hart. Unfortunately, this year, this time we've got Jerry Lawler. But this is, a, I would say, it is bearable phase anyway. Uh, <laughs> the King. Um, what was our thoughts on, the, on them as a team? I thought they were pretty good, actually. I think they worked very well with each other throughout the show i think they've got a nice balance and also um vince is very toned down i think because mm. i'm not a big fan of oh, vince mcmahon <laughs> i'm not the biggest fan i know tinky and tom hang on hang on, hang on. can you just do do the sting thing ah! okay i just needed to i just needed to hear the difference that's all <laughs> yeah yeah Oh, 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 I got him. Oh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that Vince McMahon, but I think he's very good here. Mm. Very good indeed, actually, I'd say. Yeah, I, I, I like Vince and I like Jim, and I forgot how annoying Jerry Lawler is. <laughs> I just was like, I haven't listened to Jerry Lawler do commentary in literally 15 years, and it was like, oh my God, this is awful. <laughs> how did he get to this legendary <laughs> state? Because I, I don't mind heel commentators when they're at least trying to get people over in their heelness. That's why I'm concerned. But Lawler is just shoehorning jokes in left, right, and center that don't make any sense and aren't making me laugh. And it's just, just, just be quiet. Ross and McMahon, it was peak JR, we have to say. And I think you're right, Vince did seem to be more subdued. And But I think he understood there was kind of Maybe that opening um, video got to him, and he had to be serious for a bit. Not, you know. Yeah. But it was it was it was kind of a direction change for the company as well. The, like you think back a couple of years, like '95, and it was still cartoon WWF, and they're now trying to make things a bit more realistic and kind of aiming at a slightly older audience. I think he was trying to create a product that was a bit more subdued generally. It's uh, it's interesting because I was trying to think how I felt about these three as a commentary team. And I realized I actually can't remember anything about their commentary, which I think is probably a good thing. It didn't it didn't stand out to me in a way that I found annoying. Usually if I can remember key things about the commentary team, it's usually that they were bad or they were annoying me or they were distracting me from the show itself but here i think actually thinking back i mean we may as we go through we may find differently but i can't remember anything any moments where i was like oh god shut up like just stop talking. <laughs> which when when you're talking about wrestling commentary and i'm not just talking about wwe anymore i'm talking about every single commentary i've ever seen heard in wrestling when you talk about wrestling commentary just being able to ignore them is probably as good as it gets I agree with what James said as well, is that it feels like a um, it's a more serious presentation, even from when we watched King of the Ring 96. I know, like you said, Owen Hart's in the, in the commentary team and he, he plays the hero role in that. And there's a bit, I don't know whether, I don't know, actually, I think I might be talking myself out with this because I don't know whether, it, I don't know whether it is less serious in that show because well, as much as Owen makes some, quite humorous comments during that show well not very, just very funny stuff he says them deadpan and i think he's saying them seriously i think i've worked myself into a shoot lads i think i'm well, actually gonna have a ride down you you do this regularly old man they're, they're, yeah you know, I, I edit this podcast every week and I, obviously i'll be listening stuff and your 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 sentences sometimes will start with as if you're going in one direction and then yeah. completely turn on me and i'm like whoa 
hang on, how do I make sense of this sentence now? Like, I, can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't get rid of any of these words because otherwise nothing yeah. will make sense. Well, that's it. That's how my head works. We get, we get a view into your mind every single week. Although, although I must say there are less tits going on being mentioned in the podcast than there are in my head. So. <laughs> but just as many dicks, I should imagine. <laughs> <laughs> most certainly um <laughs> we saw we as you said we see the cage that's uh oh, is, is now surrounded the beautiful the cage is the that blue bars oh. old, old blue bars they call it old yeah. <laughs> and, and before we get any kind of a match we get some clips of triple h and mankind fighting around the arena at canadian stampede a classic pay-per-view that we've missed for this year maybe we'll hit it next year who knows and footage from war where mankind hides himself as a cameraman in order to attack triple h as well before we get the opener which is triple h versus mankind and the continuation of their feud which began at the king of the ring in the final of that tournament it is a cage match as you say china is in triple h's corner and this one ends when as mankind is climbing out of the ring He's just about to get to the floor and instead decides to climb back up to the top of the cage and jump off of it in the manner of Jimmy Superfly Snooker. As he comes down, he hits Triple H with a big old elbow drop and then manages to climb back out of the ring in time before Triple H can be dragged to the floor through the door by China so that Mankind gets the victory. Uh, after a bit of Mankind's win music, as I've called it here, uh, Dude Loves music then comes on and he starts to tap a rhythm with his boot and in the end breaks into a full on <laughs> dance. James, what was your thoughts on this one? I really like this match because I genuinely don't like Triple H matches, but he was getting his head kicked in. So that, that, that improved it for me. Um, but yeah, and no, I, I did enjoy this match. I'm trying to think now whether I enjoy this match more because I've read the Have a Nice Day autobiography from Mankind, and therefore get the context of the match much more deeply than I did at the time. There was obviously a lot of video packages and stuff to go with the match that were kind of upping it as his Jimmy Snooker tribute, but you don't realise how deep he was into WWF 80s folklore until you read the book, because obviously he grew up on that stuff and the guard and, and, and those kind of matches. So I knew about that stuff, but watching it again, it does kind of like give me still gives me chills when he climbs to the top of the cage and i kind of disappointed it wasn't later on the card but again it, i think there's always practical reasons for in the opener there in the sense of it's a cage match so if you put it on first you don't have to worry about taking the cage down and it's in it's less time i know that wwe crew used to like try and break the record each time they put a cage up on pay-per-view because it was like because they had to get it down and quicker back up and quickly again for for, uh, for things because I remember watching our oh, Rick Rude and the Ultimate Warrior, that main event from SummerSlam, a previous, was it, 92? No, it wouldn't be then. I can't, 1990, that's it. And they actually tried to break the record then to get the cage up whilst they were doing interviews backstage. And there was a certain amount of time they had to get it all done in. And uh, Lord Alfred Hayes was covering it as they, as they did it. So it obviously, it's this practical reason supporting that cage there uh, at the first one. And yeah, I really enjoyed the match. I enjoyed the story of the match. And brought back memories of that whole feud and cactus at Madison Square Garden and that period of time, which I think was the peak Foley years, even before he got to the championship, as far as his WWF run was concerned, that he was being the most creative at this particular point. And he's a lovable guy, even though, you know, he's a psychopath. So I like the lovable psychopaths and, and Foley was my guy at that particular time because I'd watched him in WCW. Um, I think the first match I saw him in was, 
Cactus Jack in 89 against Brian Pillman on WCW Worldwide. So I've been a fan of his for quite some time. So, yeah, this was really cool to see this again and kind of relive the peak Foley moments of my watchingness of him. I wonder whether the cage thing, putting it on first, was a reaction. Because that Warrior Rude match that you mentioned was in the main event of SummerSlam 90. But they did do Brett versus Owen in the cage at SummerSlam 94. And it wasn't the last match. The Undertaker versus Undertaker happened afterwards. And mm. so what, what they had to do that night was have a massive pause after the third from last match. Then yeah. whilst they built the cage. And then they had another pause as they took down the cage. Because it wasn't the ones that hang from the ceilings now, which are just they just yeah. move up and down. And so I wonder if this was they thought, well, we can't. It's not going to be the main event, and we don't want to take a load of you know a load of time either side of putting up and down the cage. So we'll have it on first because it means we can have the cage already up, ready to go. Yeah, I think that makes that makes like practical sense as well. It's a hot match to open your show. It grabs people's attention. You know, it's what like a lot of shows don't. What WCW at the time were doing with the cruiserweights. What TNA, sorry, Impact Wrestling do now with uh, the X Division, you, you grab people's attention with that. With that, yeah, I mean, the, as a WCW guy, because I was really a WCW guy at the time, the escape the cage rules thing, kind of like, why, why are you running away? That's not particularly noble. So as a storytelling device, I don't like that. But having said that, I didn't notice that in this match. It's normally the thing that annoys me about WWF cage matches is that they why is your hero running away from the heel? That doesn't make any sense to me. But I didn't notice that in this match. I was fully engrossed in it. So that shows you how far it had gone in my estimation. See, I this was, because I'm a WWF guy, that was what I loved about it, is that it's a proper cage match. In the cage <laughs> match now, you can, you can pin people. And it's like, no, no. that's like, <laughs> what, like The idea of the cage is obviously to keep other people out or it's like the end of a feud. And... They use the cage as it should be used as a weapon. And that's why I love old blue bars, because it looks like it bloody hurts. It <laughs> looks really blue. And they beat the shit out of each other, these lads. Old, uh, holding her hemorrhoids and mankind absolutely beat the shit out of each other. This is brilliant. China is magnificent yeah. on the outside in her role. She shuts the door and you know it's coming because she almost does it before she shuts the cage door on mankind's head and it looks absolutely horrible if, if i remember she, correctly from the book he actually got a stinger from that yeah I, i'm not surprised I, we've called out chair shots and that on here so i needed to mention just how horrible it looks but it's just a very very good match i thought this is these are two guys who seem incapable of having a bad match against each other like whenever I've seen them, they just seem to get each other and they bring the best out of each other. Like this is Triple H. He's just about to become DX Triple H and go to the next level in terms of like where he is on the card and things like that. And you can see why, I think, in this match. And you can see just how much faith they have in Mankind as well mm. to get over Triple H while also getting himself over and I like the elbow drop from the top, and I kind of guessed it was coming. But I always found it odd that Mick Foley's hero, well, like one of the people that he looks to as a hero, is Jimmy Snooker, because they seem so opposed, like morally, because obviously Jimmy Snooker, by all accounts, wasn't a particularly nice human being, whereas Mick Foley's pretty much universally loved for being an absolutely lovely guy. But, I mean, that that's just a small thing. But it's just really 
great. I absolutely loved the dude love stuff at the end because it's really stupid. It really, <laughs> like, in other hands, it would have been handled terribly and they would have no-sold everything that had gone before it, but Foley's still selling like a champ, even when he's doing his little knee-swapping thing. Great stuff. I've ruined me load about eight times already. <laughs> what, what, I want some more. Nothing can take me down from here. <laughs> he's down to the marrow now. Oh, <laughs> um, this is really, really good. It's a really great match. There's so much about it. I like the interesting thing you said about Superfly. Obviously, I don't imagine that Mick Foley. I mean, obviously, when he grew up, he liked Jimmy Jimmy Superfly Snooker, so he didn't know what was what was going on with Snooker. I wonder whether he knew by this point though what had happened with Snooker, because I would imagine that the stories were had been traveling around the backstage a lot by this point in time and if they weren't traveling yeah if they weren't going around the backstage certainly he i'm sure he would have heard from someone at some point that this was happening so maybe that that's a bit of a a bit of a shame but yeah it's just really good it's right at the beginning for me where you you know you said about the fact that we've got this sometimes happens with WSW pay-per-views where they put the cruiserweights on for at first or or in fact it happened nearly every show they put the cruiserweights on first and and impact is the same they often pretty much start with the x division this is different though in the sense that these are effectively two upper mid card guys like the x division mm-hmm. tends to be really your opening acts and for most of WSW most of those cruiserweights especially in 95 96 were really the openers of the show they didn't really have really in-depth um, really concentrated on storylines where, for example, they could have been in the final of the King of the Ring against one another. These two were in that position. So you're basically throwing out a couple of upper mid-card guys in a really big gimmick match. It's quite a bold step to take, even taking into account what we said about the, the cage being set up. And they give them 16 minutes, which is which is more than enough time to construct a very nice match indeed. The the other thing that I find fascinating about this is this just at the beginning where WWE start to change, not just the they they started to change. We talked about King of the Ring '96, the harder edge that they were starting to bring in at that point. But at this point, they've also started to change the way they'll talk about wrestling. So they've got now Jim Ross starting to talk about you know their previous careers, what they've done in the past, which never used to happen at all. You've got. Prior to the show, Mankind has done a series of interviews with Jim Ross where he's talked about who he is, um, who, you know, and that's why we've got the dude love character, because he obviously had been uh, uh, talked about the fact that that was the character that he made up as a child. He's spoken about the fact that he had been Cactus Jack. And I think uh, not long after this, they bring Cactus Jack back into WWE because he has a match with Triple H on Raw. It's a be- the beginning of them starting to mesh in a little bit of the reality stuff but i think they do it in a way in at this period where it it still carries enough of the story to feel like it's part of the world they've created whereas later on they just go silly and just do crazy things this and they do it they've done it with it's not just mankind they do it with something that happens in the next match as well which we'll talk about in a second but yeah it's just a different time uh and suddenly things are changing and these two men are two of their sort of prime candidates to move up to the main event if you if you bear in mind that we've effectively on the show got brett and the undertaker and that and Shawn michaels and they are the main event i mean austin's just bubbling under he's just about to get there but they're that's it that's their entire main event they need some new guys to be to be lifted up to that level and so there's these sort of people starting to make their case now for getting into the mix and being considered 
as the next ones to be elevated. So yeah, I just really enjoyed it. Really good match. It was interesting. There's a bit in the, this is what I just realized there is a bit of commentary. I remember because there's a moment in this match where the fans started chanting Superfly, and it's just before mankind gets over the cage and starts climbing back up. And then as he starts climbing back up and the fans are no longer chanting Superfly, Jim Ross then says the fans are chanting Superfly. And I was like, they're not anymore. <laughs> they were about a minute ago, but they're not now, JR. So that was a that was a, that was one bit of a uh, thing that I, met, I noticed. But o- overall, a, a cracking way to start a show, cracking yeah. way to start a SummerSlam. Can't argue with it, really, can you? No. Without the main event, I think, I think this match was good enough to kind of see me through the rest of the card. They got a pass on a few things because of how good this is. And like we'll get into this a bit later on, but like you just said then, Tinky, outside of the main event and this match, fuck I mean that roster was something else, wasn't it? Mm. It was really like I was really caught off guard by it. I gotta be honest. Interestingly, I think that continues right well into ninety eight. They are yeah. they have got a really thin roster at this point. Mm. And they are kind of surviving off of the scraps almost that's been left by WCW because they've just been able to sign everybody like mm. not not just all the top guys but like guys that you would just be in the middle and they've kept a load of guys that potentially when they become available WWF might be interested in but at this point it's just yeah it's just a really cobbled together let's just get anything we can there's, there's a lot of WCW guys on this roster that was one thing I was going to say I mean Spring Stampede 94 we watched and on mm. that show, you've got Mick Foley, you've got Goldust, you've got Brian Pillman, you've got Steve Austin, you know, yeah. and they're all massively important to this show. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, in fact, until you get to match four, every wrestler had been in WCW within the previous two or three years. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, and then uh, then match four, the David Boy had just come back from WCW. They were they were signing guys, but it, you're right, it, it, there isn't an awful lot there to to build around is the that's why they've done those deals with the uswa and smoky mountain because yeah. they just needed some talent to to come along every now and again and join in jerry that's why jerry lola wrestled quite regularly because <laughs> he didn't have the roster let's be honest it doesn't really kick into gear until varvina signs <laughs> and then the roster just purely by his presence he's <laughs> just risen up two or three notches they build the entire company around him don't they Orban? well they do the, the amount of opening matches he had there's a reason why it's because he's the best to ever lace a pair of boots or maybe velcro a pair of boots don't know what he wore to be honest (laughs) i was too distracted by his sexual dynamism (laughs) next up we get that thing that we were referring to just a moment ago todd pettengill introduces governor christine todd whitman is her name to a chorus of booze from the new jersey (laughs) crowd So WWE is absolutely no selling those booze and yeah. giving her a bit of publicity here. And we find out why pretty quickly, because Pettengill thanks Whitman for reducing taxes to help WWE come back to New Jersey. They hadn't been in New Jersey for what they say, I think, seven or eight years uh, yeah. as a consequence, I guess, of some prohibitive taxes or at least prohibitive that they felt were prohibitive. And she's accompanied by the headbangers for some fucking yeah. reason. I have no idea why. Like, <laughs> what the that, fuck is she have with them? They were built from New Jersey, I believe. Yeah. Fair enough. That makes sense. Sort of. um, then Gorilla Monsoon presents her with a WWF title belt and proclaims her an honorary world champion. And she promises to defend the belt. Uh, 
<laughs> as best she can going forward. Christine Todd Whitman, Republican representative for New Jersey. Old oh, man, do you want to start? Do you want? To... <laughs> so they're celebrating the fact that WWE effectively don't have to pay any taxes, so they can run a show, and they're celebrating this in fact of people who probably paid not a not a very not a very low figure to come and watch this wrestling show, knowing that Vince McMahon and his company are just taking everything out of it and that their state isn't getting anything from it i know like don't get me wrong like i never go and watch football and think you know what i'm glad i'm paying tax on this because that will go into bristol but the fact that they highlight it and they're so proud that this has happened is very odd and i can't even imagine the backhander whitman was given for getting rid of those taxes. I mean, no wonder she was willing to defend that about. I bet she was earning about maybe 50 grand a match. Just for the purposes of the Random Wrestling Review's legal position, we have no uh, evidence that there no, was any backhanders sure. going on at all. Um, these, This is purely just the uh, personal opinions of, of old man Sam Carey. Hang on, hang on a minute. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. I hope so. You know what? I don't give a shit. <laughs> because the best thing about this is Mosh in the background, who obviously knows that this is utter bollocks. So he does that little pub thing where he pulls his ear out, ears out, puffs his cheek out, sticks his tongue out a little bit and does that behind the camera. And I get the impression that he's quickly told to stop doing that by someone. <laughs> so he then backs off like a scolded dog. Or a red-headed stepchild, as JR used to say, quite oddly. Yeah. So, so the thing that they're the thing that WWF are praising here is that she removed excise taxes on professional wrestling. Yes. Um, no more taxes. I don't exactly know what had happened here. I don't know what the original, the previous, the I, previous I, taxes were. But I, I did do a little bit of research, and one of the reasons, perhaps, why she wasn't that popular was because she only won the election by one percent. Yeah, and there was rumours, obviously not proven, allegedly that that was down to voter suppression. So that could be a thing. Apparently, one of her aides bragged about the fact that spent half a million dollars on voter suppression, and she sued him, and she won. So yeah, she, she's quite litigious. Um, but yeah, that's possibly why she wasn't that popular. Uh, however, her dad and her mom were big names in New Jersey Republican politics. Maybe, perhaps, if you're the kind of person that wants to take a stab at New England politics somewhere in the future, you might want them on side for a bit of help. Maybe. I don't know anyone in the WWE family that uh, would want to do that, obviously, at the time. But we're talking down the line. Uh, one other thing I found out about her, she was also head of the EPA under the first bush administration and she's the reason why there's more arsenic in u.s drinking water than there used to be you know what she sounds like a bloody good egg <laughs> <laughs> she sounds like the exact person that i'd like to get on a family what is still a family product and show her off to the world give her a title bout show her with the undertaker where with the headline whitman choke slams taxes <laughs> which is I mean, to be fair, some of the play on words with the headlines were tremendous stuff. And ultimately, I don't particularly care that she got rid of the taxes in New Jersey. But I don't care because I don't want it on a wrestling show. If I want to find out that information, I'll look it up elsewhere. And poor old Todd Pettengill, he's just trying to have a good time. He's just trying to grow out his mullet. And Whitman's asking, like, threatening to defend the belt. It would have been good if, uh, after this, 
they showed Tiger Ali Singh in the crowd. Would have been great if they'd had a debut match and he'd won the belt off her <laughs> and pretended to be the real world champion and then toured that round separate to WWF and then he'd have come back and he could have taken it off Brett at Survivor Series. <laughs> because he, would, he, he would have dropped the belt to Tiger Ali Singh, but he wouldn't do it for Sean. You've just uh, you've just solved the the Montreal screw job there. I mean, admittedly, twenty four years after the event, but you have solved it. <laughs> and then Earl Hebner wouldn't have had to elide. True, he wouldn't. No, You're right. uh, that is a very Tiger Jeet Singh thing to do as well. You know. See, I I have no idea about that, but I'm bloody happy. Turns out I'm a booking genius. Well, not, not only that, but Tiger Ali Singh was in fact Canadian, so would have been Hart would have yeah. been even more happy to do it. So. Oh. It all fits. It all fits in the it end. It does. So, yeah, after the... Um, this is just weird, though, isn't it? Because it's the most partisan I've ever seen WWB in anything. Like, yeah. of any kind specifically as well. It's not like, you know, now and again, Vince McMahon had a few digs at old Clinton. He used to love doing that on commentary. But, you know, he was the president. People always take digs at the president. So it's kind of not so clear that it's because he's a Democrat. It's because he's just the president. Yeah. Um and there are some other bits and pieces over time where you kind of get a, a whiff of, of McMahon's politics. But he, in the main, is quite quite good at just hiding it or at least just, you know, doing the old all politicians are crooks kind of kind of yeah. line. But here he's just properly like they are properly endorsing this woman. Uh, I mean, ultimately, because she did, in fact, um, bring in legislation which actually made their business <laughs> more profitable to them. So I guess it makes sense. But all the same, very different kind of vibe this for WWE. And you can only imagine that there was some kind of mutual uh, benefit out of this because because otherwise I can't see them doing this. And what's particularly odd about this, and this is what I thought, because when I was watching it, I was like, oh, that's a weird thing for them to do. But oh, well, never mind. And I was like, why have they left that in? All the stuff that they've cut from shows <laughs> on the network, why have they left that in? Because also, I suppose they probably did this because they needed to get the cage down, which I'd not even thought about until James mentioned the time it takes to get the cage down. So that makes sense. That's why they did it. Yeah. Yeah. But why they've left it in? Well, that's why they've put it here. It might not yeah. be the way they've done it. They probably already had to do it because it's yeah. probably, probably part of the deal. But you're right. That's why they put it here on the um, show. Do you think older, what's her name, Janice Whitman or whatever, do you think that she was pleased with the reaction that she got from the crowd? And she thought, you know, this is really going to boost my popularity when they announce her and 20,000 New Jersey natives boo her out the building. Well, she I won think... the next election by 3%, so it must have done something for her. Fuck me. Go on, America. It was the Continental Airlines Arena crowd that swayed it for in that extra 2%. They were so impressed with her having won the WWF Championship. They thought, oh, I've got to vote for her now, haven't I? Yeah. In so, fairness, this is what these things are about, though, isn't it? It's not even really about whether anyone likes you or not. It's about just getting your name out there constantly yeah, and making sure people remember it. who you are. Yeah. So as you say, yeah. we saw Tiger G and Tiger Ali Singh in the crowd, father and son. I didn't realise they were father and son until this moment. Of course, it makes sense, but I'd never realised yeah. they were. Um, we then get some footage of a public event of some kind early in the day, a beach party, they call it. Uh, the the, the weather is not as good as it was at Bash of the Beach 1995, though, was it? <laughs> well, so you've not got the confidence in the weather, have you, in northeast 
America, but you would have in Miami. And this is where I realised that the headbangers are from New Jersey because they mention it here. And uh, is this the best Tiger Rally scene match you've ever seen? <laughs> <laughs> what? Not wrestling? Yeah, I think yeah. you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. 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 I actually think this is probably the best moment he ever had, actually, in WWF. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I know that sounds awful, but I think it's true. Like from there on in, he has shit matches. And then (laughs) the only other thing he does is that horrible thing he did with Babu, his like slave guy that he used to bring out every now and again and make him like lick his toes and shit. Like (laughs) it was like, so this is probably the best moment he has in his entire WWF career. Go on, lad. (laughs) To be fair, it's about the best moment I've seen Tiger G sing because he's terrible too. So, you know. There's two generations of people that managed to get massive amounts of money for their careers, which I suppose is what like you that's what it's all about, I suppose. Yeah, it's just a bit galling when you've got to watch them on pay per view. So if someone okay. like, like I've worked with people previously, they're just crap at their job. But I don't have to watch them on a weekly episodic television show and pay for oh. the right to do so. Yeah, I, and also watch them roll around in pants. So yeah, then next we get footage shown of Brian Pillman attacking Goldust on Raw and Marlena trying to stop him by jumping on Pillman's back. Uh, uh, that is before the next match, which is Goldust versus Brian Pillman. It is a seven minutes match and comes with the stipulation that if Brian Pillman loses, he has to uh, wear a dress tomorrow night on Raw. It ends when uh, Pillman manages to counter a Goldust bulldog. But then as Goldust tries to sunset flip back into the ring and botches it, by the way, um, Marlena nails Pillman with her purse, allowing Goldust to pin Pillman. Afterwards, Pillman smashes up the mannequin that the dress is on. James, your thoughts on this one? So this was after the Brian Pillman car accident where he screwed up his ankle. So he wasn't flying Brian anymore, as I remember him. And he was working things off of character, which meant that the story of this match in seven minutes seemed to be a lot better than anything I'd watched Brian Pillman and Dustin Runnels do before. Because uh, Goldust, as good a character as he is, and as problematic a character as he is, um it was all about story rather than like big tough man matches like he had as Dustin Runnels so this was a much better way of presenting both of them I think so I like this match a lot it it still had lots of echoes of the WCW style that they kind of put together in the early 90s that they'd both grown up on so there was plenty of that to remind me of what that was like but it was good I was solid I liked it it was a lot of fun to watch and but again it was story based and I think Pullman really excelled as a storyteller because I know that like he made his reputation on that match with Liger on the first like Nitro and stuff, but he hated it. He wanted to be a storytelling wrestler and that was kind of where he was at. He just happened to be trapped in this really athletic high flying body. So this was the kind of thing he wanted to do. So it was really cool. I also appreciate the fact that he still had the four horsemen symbol on his tights, which was cool. Kind of more hammer and sickleish, but it was still kind of horsemany of that particular era. So I, I think he was he was still trying to be as absolutely subversive as he possibly could by getting the horseman symbol on WWF television, which I appreciate greatly. Oh, man. So there's an issue here with commentary. This was the major issue on commentary that I had in that Jerry Lawler seems to justify uh, Brian Pillman hitting Marlena. Yes, I do agree with you there. Yes, which I found very uncomfortable. Suppose with the I didn't think this was particularly good this match and I didn't understand the stipulation really because Brian Pillman is the loose cannon Brian Pillman yet he's so rigid 
the the thought of wearing a dress on television for probably what will amount to 15 minutes is driving him insane and it's just like i don't really understand it it's obviously it's primarily a way to try and get gold dust over is how i read it but it just didn't really do anything for me the the crowd, they seem about as invested as I am, to be honest, in what's going on. And I didn't really get the one, The only thing that I took from the match, apart from Jerry Lawler being a bit of a scumbag, is that Marlena gets a big shout out because this is the first female that I can remember before they then go the direction they go with the females that are in the company that kind of traverses the two, I think where she's in the bra and panties bit. And she's also, like here, she's a really, not necessarily very well-defined, but she's a character. And that's kind of what you want from a valet or even a manager as well to do. And she's very much in that mold before it then flips, probably only not even a year later, I think. They kind of flip to getting them to do more, I don't know how to put this, more sexy things. And I kind of like, yeah, I kind of appreciated that more than I think I probably appreciated the match. They were on a journey with this, just like everything else. So yeah. they had been, it was like early 96, they brought out Raw magazine. So they already had mm. the WWF magazine, they brought out Raw magazine, which was basically supposed to like be aiming at the older audience. And it nearly every month had a centerfold and it was basically either Sonny Sable or or Marlena, because they, they were the only three women they had in the promotion. So what else could they do? And so they had started to go there with all three of them um, mm. by, for, for at least a year. But in terms of what they did on screen, it was a lot less about, as you say, they didn't they weren't constantly showing their underwear or yeah. stripping themselves down or other people stripping them down. They were almost exclusively or certainly Marlena was very much exclusively the corner person for gold dust um over this period of time but this was what i was talking about earlier on about the other person that they were doing these sort of kayfabe non-kayfabe interviews with because they started to talk about gold dust and who he was and the fact that he was dustin Rhodes and the fact that he didn't or or was doing this gold dust thing partially as a way to get from out of the shadow of his of his father dusty Rhodes. and they obviously also had talked about the fact that dustin and um Marlena Terry Rhodes were were in fact married so it was all part of this kind of starting to mesh in some of this reality or real life stuff that they were doing at this time so again it was another another thing that they were sort of trying to just blur those lines they'd already done it a bit with Brian Pillman in fact earlier the the year before and now they were doing it here as well but you're right about that I hadn't considered the Brian Pillman thing you're right why would he care about mm. having to wear a dress mm. because, because he's the loose cannon but what I think they're missing here, if I'm honest, maybe they could have put it again. Another thing between this, the cage match and this was that the segment on Raw, where clearly the Hart Foundation have all tried to one up each other about the the, the bets they're going to do, because we it's a it's a feature throughout the rest of the show. They could have really done with just showing a clip or you know a, mm. a, an edited clip of that of that um, segment where they're all going, I'm going to do this if I lose, I'm going to do that if I lose, and all that stuff. So. That part is a bit it, perhaps missing because that could have that would have been a nice bit of context, I think. It's just missing something, isn't it? And so when they uh when they pop down the ramp, these lads, I thought, hello. Because we've watched like in our WCW shows, we've seen a little bit of Pillman. And I thought he is and I wasn't aware of a car crash and a bad ankle. Poor lad. I think did he pick up the injury just after he signed for WWF? Like literally yeah. just after? Yeah, I think it just after the ECW run he had. Um, he was from what I remember, he was interviewed in Power Slam 
or Finn Martin interviewed him for Powerslam. And if I remember correctly, of all things, he was driving to his accountant, wasn't wearing a seatbelt in an open top Jeep and got hurled out the, the, the Jeep and landed badly on his ankle. Cool. So and basically he'd worked WCW into releasing him from his contract in real yes. life. He actually worked them into it um, yeah. and then signed with the WWF. And then had the car, car accident. And that's why when we saw him again at King of the Ring 96, he really had the had the old yeah. crutches because he was still his, his leg was done in. And I think he re-injured it as well. So it delayed his debut in the ring even yeah. further to like he'd only had like a few months of working in the ring again for WF. Um, yeah, he passes away not long after this. And it was a heart condition they didn't know until they did the autopsy. He worked for the Cincinnati Bengals, one of the CFL teams, WCW, WWF, and none of them picked it up in all the medicals he'd had in his career. And yeah, just strange. But he, he, this sad. is obviously, this is only like two months before as well he passed. Yeah. Um, which again, you know, we, I remember, you know, when I was still doing the Daily Squash, I think me and Tom did a review of the Bad Blood pay-per-view, which is where Shawn Michaels and Undertaker have their Hell in a Cell match. Oh, yes. But that show is fascinating because it's literally just before the Montreal Screwjob. The entire roster changes immediately after Survivor Series because you're losing. I mean, look at this roster. Pillman dies. You're losing the entire Hart Foundation almost in one go. Owen Hart's the only one that remains. And suddenly the whole roster is like different. It's like completely, mm. it's completely changed. Mm. So it, it, that was coming to mind during this as well, is just how much this roster changed. I think there was ECW shows because he worked ECW between WCW and WWF where he was in a wheelchair and he was using a cane. So that was the debut of the steel-tipped cane he had as a proper heel should have, should have a steel-tipped cane. Hang on. Uh, when you say cane, do you mean one for walking or has he got Glenn Jacobs just holding him <laughs> up? Yeah, just a little jingle, Glenn Jacobs. Yeah. <laughs> it's, oh my God, it's Minnie Kane. <laughs> In terms of uh, in terms of this match, I thought this was okay. It was fine. It was not special. I think I would have liked it more had it not been for the botch right at the end where Goldust doesn't really manage to do a sunset flip, which is a disappointing end to what was, I thought, a, a, a decent match up until that point. Next up, Vince announces a new attendance record of 20,213 for the arena. Who knows how legitimate that that record is i'm not gonna not gonna dwell on it then we get footage of the feud between the godwins and the legion of doom which is followed up by a backstage promo by hawk and animal oh man tell me how much you were looking forward to watching this one well i mean always exciting when the godwins are are involved um so in answer to your question i was not very excited And I was kind of a little bit like, like I said, after the first match, I was like, ah, that's basically the noise I was making. And then we had old Walt Whitman come out. <laughs> and then we had a Pillman Goldust match, which I think I was expecting more from. So I was a bit like, oh. a big shout out to Marlena, because I obviously had a little think about like her role and stuff like that. And then we had the video for this. And I was like, what's happening here? And this was where I began to notice Actually, yeah, 1997 WWE, not a very good co- well, like, roster. But you never know. Weird things can happen. After this video, I sat back and thought they could deliver a clinic. They could do. <laughs> you, you never know. You never know. The match itself between the Godwins and the Legion Doom goes for nine minutes. And it ends when we get Phineas preventing a doomsday device on Henry Godwin. Um, but then they instead hit a spike pile driver on Henry instead mm. on apparently on on the guy obviously that has apparently broken his neck 
as a yes. consequence of their previous doomsday device. James, yeah. I imagine this is right up your street. Yeah, it's awesome, this. About four minutes too long, to be honest. Because you don't, you don't get into the LOD for a match classic, do you? It's not like, you know, Luthez versus Tatsumi or anything. It's just big, raw, wah, big match, end. You, you basically watch it for the intro and for the finish. You don't need anything else in between. And to try and deep, tell deeper stories of revenge with the Legion of Doom and the Godwins, i asking a bit much for the people involved. And I actually like the Godwins because I watched them in WCW as well as Tex Slazinger and Shanghai Pierce. And I don't understand why they didn't keep those names because those names were awesome. That's a tag team. That's a team I want to watch. Whereas the Godwins, I really want to watch. And I can understand they're trying to establish their heel credentials. But when the babyface team are acting more heelish than the heel team, it's really, really hard. So it was an LOD match and it was a Godwins match. But it was, yeah, it should have been over a lot quicker than it was. I think, old man, to your point, the fact that um, these two teams got nine minutes shows how thin this roster is. I think if they've been, usually you'd give them four minutes and they'd come in. They'd go out and then you'd be done with it. But I think they've just got to take up more time because, yeah. you know, they there just isn't there's only seven matches on this card as well, which is worth saying. So they really are stretching this out for about as long as they can. Personally, I think they do pretty well with it. I gotta be honest. I thought they were okay. Yeah. I thought they did pretty well. But I don't think in ordinary circumstances they would give these guys nine minutes. Old man, what do you think? Well, first of all, I can I'd be remiss, especially in Tom's absence, for me not to mention animals' hair. <laughs> animal's hair is disgusting so he's 290 pound and i reckon 15 pound of that is mullet <laughs> it is repulsive like or disgusting <laughs> we had hawk in a show that i can't remember which one where he had double mullets because obviously he's got the split hair and he had two little flappy mullets that i think tom probably still has nightmares about yeah, they came down together. So they, they yeah. Mohawks went down the back of his head and then joined up at the back, creating a mullet. Which was absolutely disgusting. Um, you've got Jr. saying that the Godwins deliver a country fried clothesline, which makes Jerry Lawler laugh a lot. Uh, so much so that he repeats it and then just goes, <laughs> a country fried clothesline. But yeah, this is as good as you could expect with these lads getting nine minutes. The one thing I don't understand. And I can only assume that there's an injury involved. You've got apparently the hometown heroes in the headbangers and they're not on the card and they're better than both of these shithouse teams. <laughs> but I also think they're not those hard hitting lads. So that's probably why they can't pair them up because the Godwins are crap. Sorry, James. Godwins are crap. <laughs> LOD are crap. And about five years past their WWE peak, at which point they were still crap. But they were slightly more athletic. And they did exactly what you said, James. They got in, did their stuff as quick as they could, fucked off, everyone's happy. Mm -hmm. My main problem with the match is that the Godwins look so naked. (laughs) Because they're not, and I don't know why they're not. It must maybe it was a hot day. Maybe it was warmer than it looked in the footage from the beach party, but they're not wearing anything under their dungarees. So in every other match I can remember, they've got T-shirts on underneath. They're not. And to be honest, I noticed that about seven minutes in, in the last two minutes, or a bit of a struggle. 
Well, this is their transition because they're currently they they were they were baby faces, but they're now heels. See, so they their transition into being heels is that they just get rid of their t-shirts. I think one of them does bring back a t-shirt, but it's got the old Confederate flag on it. Just continue to you know big up the fact that they are heels at this point. Modern advocates of the Confederate flag should uh, pay attention because it just makes you a heel, basically, is what we're saying. <laughs> um, and I just think that's why it is. I think they've they've talked about the fact that this is interesting as well to me because I didn't get they they talk about Hillbilly Jim. And I think it's JR says officially he's still their manager. Now, I don't remember them making any storyline later on about them <laughs> getting rid of Hillbilly Jim. So I didn't just ignore it. I don't, I don't know. But no, no. Hillbilly Jim's still officially their manager. I'd love to know if they had something in mind where basically Hillbilly Jim was going to come back and was going to turn heel and stay with the Godwins. Yeah. That would have been great. I, I'd, I'd like to see a heel Hillbilly Jim run. Yeah, that would be awesome. I have no idea what that looks like. That's something I want to see. Like he might dra- start dressing smartly. I think that'd be intriguing. I don't but know if I, I want. I don't know if I want to see it now though. It's maybe a little, little past. <laughs> no, it. in 1997, you know, I don't know how old Hillbilly Jim is now, but he's probably not wanting to do it. I don't think. Well, and you've got a ready-made name, Hill Billy Jim. <laughs> just, change, just change it to Hill instead of him. I think they would have changed his name to William James. That would have been his name, isn't yes. it? Yes. Yes, yeah, true. Um, talking of um, legendary tag team managers, Captain Lou Albano is also shown in the front row of the crowd during this one. But just always an unattractive man to look at. <laughs> <laughs> Again, classic heel. I mean, he was yeah. uh, a great heel. Uh, he did become a babyface, though, in mid-80s, but before that, he was a classic heel and, and had more tag team champions than anybody else. was a bit like Sonny, the Sonny of his day. <laughs> yeah, who's slightly better to look at. Well, that's that's all a matter of opinion, isn't it? It is, yeah. We're going to take a quick break there, I think. We've we've only Thank gone God through three that. fucking matches here. <laughs> we've got, we've got the, the two biggest matches and the biggest talking points still to come, so this is going to be a bit <laughs> epic. Um, but we'll be back in just a second, so don't go anywhere. Well, Vince, obviously, Shawn Michaels has been asked this question before, but but Shawn, let me ask you, will you put your entire career on the line just to get even with Brett the Hitman Hart? You know, I don't know how many times I have to address this. There is nothing between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Anything that was once there was settled last year at WrestleMania when I beat him. I am here to be an impartial, unbiased, fair referee, and nothing... Nothing will get back, get past the keen eye of Shawn Michaels. You know what I mean? I'm serious. Shawn Michaels says you're going to call it right down the middle. We'll find out. Okay, welcome back. Now, just a little, before we go on, a little story about Lou Albano, which I seem to remember from an interview that Finn Martin in Parasam did with uh, Dynamite Kid. So I seem to remember the Dynamite Kid saying about Lou Albano that after Vince McMahon Jr. took over the company, um, Lou Albano used to, like, tell him to fuck off all the time and, and, and basically tell him to go fuck himself and then would brag that Vince couldn't sack him because his dad had told him that he could never sack Lou Albano. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. he did eventually sack Lou Albano, so uh, clearly that didn't, <laughs> that didn't hold forever. But just a funny thing I thought was uh, quite interesting. I, I also understand he used to carry a briefcase around him that just had a bottle of whiskey in it. Oh, that's a proper <laughs> man, that is. <laughs> 
So next up on the show, we get yeah, this is all a bit this is a bit mad. So some some kind of competition. They don't they don't explain themselves very well at the beginning. So I'm, as I'm taking these notes, you'll you'll find that I'm very much kind of catching up with what the hell WWE are actually doing in this this segment. So I've got some footage of a few people who have won some kind of competition. The two people are accompanied by Sable and Sonny as they come out to the ring. They each pick a key which relates apparently to a number. And Todd then calls someone who does not pick up. (laughs) He calls a second number, which has been apparently disconnected, although I think actually the tone he gets is one that basically is he's he's typed in the wrong number. But we won't go Mm. won't go into that into any detail. They then get through to somebody else who isn't watching the show because the cable company that they uh, apparently in their era doesn't carry the event. Brilliant. Um, He picks a number, but the key that the number relates to isn't the right one. So they have this sort of chest thing that they're trying to open with these keys. Todd then dials another number. A woman picks up, but the number she picks also doesn't open the coffin. Then the, there's the two guys, as I said, that came out at the beginning who picked a key each. One of them is a young lad who's 12 years old, apparently. He has a go with his key, which he picked, but doesn't win. And then the other guy tries with his key, but also doesn't win. Then there's some kind of supposedly independent adjudicator, which picks up the key from the board that does win and unlocks it to show that they weren't lying. And they show the chest full of $1 bills, just a layer of $1 bills. I don't imagine there's anything underneath them. Of <laughs> but there are a lot of $1 bills there for everyone to see. Yeah, so we've already had the whole thing with Christine Mosserface, Whitman, earlier on in the show. And now we've got this as well. God, they really are filling some time here. The one thing I like about this is that Vince loves how shit it is and how bad it's going. (laughs) He's just laughing. One thing, Lawler is very rude about the man's ears, which I thought is completely unnecessary. And again, goes to show that he's a bit of a shit. Uh, He's very rude about the gentleman who gets rubbed down by by Sonny. He gets a little massage from Sonny and he looks (laughs) shell-shocked. And I don't know if that's to be on telly or whether he's getting a rub down from arguably one of the most sought-after women, definitely in wrestling, but quite a broader pill old Sonny had back in the day. Um, Yeah, no fucker wins, so what's the bleeding point? Well, she, she think... was the most downloaded woman in the world uh, around that time on the internet. Yeah. was very big then, but she was the most downloaded woman in the world. And Todd Pettengill also quite clearly perving on both Sonny and... Yes. Uh, I believe this is the reason why... Um, uh, she went off, not sunny. Uh, Sable, that's it. Why Sable left Mark Marrow and now lives in a hut in Minnesota with Brock Lesnar. I think it's possibly just the reason why she left. Just because of this competition? Absolutely, definitely. Wow. Yeah. I understand that the, one, the ones who did call in and possibly the two that were there as well got $1,000 of something. Did they not? They got something. Yes, of like kind of like premium bonds or something. That's it, yeah. I'd did rather you... have had a thousand pounds worth of biscuits. <laughs> Actually, this is a very important point because we've invited James on. He's doing a sterling job. What's your favourite biscuit, James? Oh, careful the... now. Ooh. This could swing it. This could. This really? I know. I know. That's like, I want to stir the mountain pot. You said, said this was an audition. This is this is the yeah. key question. Oh, yeah. God. See, being kind of like healthy now and stuff, I don't really do biscuits anymore. But if I had a choice, I would go with bourbons. Solid. Yeah. <laughs> In fairness, I'd have a chocolate OT or a chocolate yeah, yeah. and a cookie. 
But I, if someone shoved a bourbon in my mouth, I definitely wouldn't spill it out. Well, cookie's not cookie's not really a biscuit, is it? Let's be honest. No, it's tough, isn't it? Because it's always in the biscuit aisle. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a subset of cakes that's different to biscuits. I agree. Yeah. Well, yes. fortunately, you've come through that because otherwise we'd have cut you from the call. So. <laughs> but only just you're still on uh, you're still on uh, <laughs> the edge. Still on probation. Still on the edge. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't quite a good enough answer to get you out of probation yet. <laughs> we then get some video footage of an arm wrestling contest that takes place between Shamrock and Bulldog on Raw that breaks down when Shamrock is about to win and Bulldog attacks him, then rubs dog food into his face and Shamrock goes a bit mental for a while. Mm. The next match is Davy Boy Smith versus Ken Shamrock and is for the European title. It ends after seven and a half minutes when effectively Davy Boy Smith again rubs dog food into Shamrock's face and Shamrock again explodes in a rage, attacks Bulldog and gets himself disqualified. Uh, after the match, Shamrock continues to attack uh, Dave Boy Smith and locks him in a choke as referees try to break the hold. They eventually get him to release it, but then Shamrock suplexes Pat Patterson, Jerry Briscoe, uh, Jack Doan, and Mike Kyoda, and the fans absolutely love it. Yeah, they do. O- old man, thoughts on this one? We start off pretty hot with this one because they show the uh, picture for the match, and British Bulldog is making a magnificent face. But then we step down a little because Bulldog. Bulldog? <laughs> now, I, do, do you reckon that's his Irish brother? <laughs> um, yeah bulldog's knee pads were a disaster they're slipping down so they're not covering the knees he's having an awful time with them to the point where he gives up but we've been quite high on bulldog in the matches that we've watched this is by far the worst he is not in a good way here i don't think he's not very good in this but it's not the main problem with the match the main problem with the match is that you're meant to like this is for the european title but they keep talking about Bulldog and Shawn Michaels at one night only. So you know who's winning the match. So it doesn't really make any sense. But like, and then the match happens, it's fine. And don't let the screwy finish. Screwy finish is pointless because, like, like you said in the roundup, Tinky, we've just seen it happen. They've just done this on Raw. So they then do it again. But when Shamrock does the beatdown on Bulldog and then beats everybody else up, he stood in the ring. The crowd are going absolutely nuts. And you just think, how did he not make it as a top guy? How did he not make it to that level when you see this and you see some of the other matches that he's had? And it really made me think, what happened, Ken? Mm. And maybe maybe the fact that he couldn't get a good match out of Bulldog here is one of the reasons. Because you know full well that Shawn Michaels got him through a probably a lovely little match uh, one night only. And maybe was a tester for him james um it was intriguing because it is like this is not davy boy at his his peak because davy boy was always the mix of power and science and this is a lot of power and not much science you also to bear in mind like ken's pro career before he started shoot fighting wasn't very long and then he shipped himself off to japan to get beaten up by minoru suzuki on a regular basis so I like Ken Shamrock, and you're right. He's got something about him that kind of says star quality. And if you, I've watched like the first two or three UFCs where he was the big name on the card, and the fans love him there as well. He's got a sense of character and a sense of personality that draws people to him. Mm. But I don't think he had the mechanics of a main event wrestler. Not necessarily like he could do the moves. But the timing and the mechanics and just being able to make a story work here, 
he can do it because even Davy at his, his worst could string a match together and tell a basic story. So that kind of helps here. But there's a lot of stuff that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense going on between the two bells. And though it's nothing's terrible, it's not unwatchable. It isn't like, I think the thing is, people have taken that style that Ken Shamrock pioneered and can do main event wrestling style with it now. Mm-hmm. Shayna Baszler is the, the key example of that. She does what Ken Shamrock did, but she does it way better and puts it into a wrestling kind of style. But he didn't. He had the character, but I don't think he had the mechanics to be a main event wrestler. And I think this match is kind of where that shows the most. Not that it's bad. It's perfectly good mid-card match, but I can't see him jumping up to like that Bret Hart Undertaker level at the time. Yeah, I think it's on a par with the Godwin's Legion of Doom match, which tells you perhaps what you might want to think about this one, which is that it's, mm-hmm. it's okay. And as I said, the Godwin's Legion of Doom match was way better than I ever thought it would be, especially when it lasted nine minutes. But this still isn't what you'd expect from these two. So it's only okay. The end is it's a bit rubbish, but I get, as you say, old man, they're trying to keep the bell on him so that he can face mm-hmm. Shawn Michaels and one night only for that title. And um, the end where Shamrock gets the pop is just phenomenal especially when he just does the scream so afterwards after he's left all this wake of destruction and then there's the and (laughs) and the crowd the crowd go crazy for him they're just like this is fantastic but in terms of why he didn't make it i think it's perhaps more down to timing than anything else actually we're going to be talking about this in a minute so it makes some sense Imagine that what happened between Steve Austin and Owen Hart on this show doesn't happen. And Steve Austin doesn't have an injured neck, can go into all of his matches in the future in the same way as he approached all of his matches prior to this date. And in 98 or 99, when WWF was searching around for a heel guy to go up against Steve Austin, Ken Shamrock would be drafted into that position, I'm pretty sure. But unfortunately, I think what happens is because Austin injures his neck so badly in the match we're about to see in a moment... I don't think that they feel that that Shamrock can have the match with Austin that Shamrock would have. And mm. I just don't think he's any more any longer suitable for a heel run with Austin, which would have been, I think, fire at one point. But as I say, he just can't do it because Shamrock has a style which is pretty physical. It's all about suplexes, which is not something Austin takes at all mm. after this point. And so I just think I think that's what happens. I think that cu- coupled with some mismanagement of him and the way so here they do the thing where he explodes and everyone loves it and they do it a few more times but unfortunately that's all they do with him that's that's effectively Mm. all he ever does then for the next year and by the sort of by the following year SummerSlam already people are a bit tired of him a bit a bit like oh come on do something other and than this and not only that but this end where he gets disqualified because he loses his temper is what they do with him all year. <laughs> he goes into a few with the rock after this for the intercontinental title and doesn't win the belt because he constantly goes into a rage and gets disqualified and people just get fed up of it. He then becomes a heel, but they then as a consequence of the heel turn, they start to use the, he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he is the most dangerous line about him. Mm. And it starts to take off this idea of him being kind of a cool hard man, tough guy thing he just suddenly starts to become a little bit laughing stock so i think timing and mismanagement is the reason he didn't become a main eventer but certainly at this point they must have been looking at him as someone that they were thinking right next year this guy's going to be a prime candidate to be a main event level star because you've got to remember as well by this point the rock hadn't even turned heel so mm. he was he was way down there thinking about in terms of the pecking order of people who are going to go up to to the main event shamrock would have been probably in prime position to do it 
just timing just didn't work out. Which knife would be the sharp? <laughs> would, would not be the sharpest, but would be the toughest. Well, the most dangerous one would be, I guess, the one with the spikiest end. Yeah, hmm. but not but not the sharp. So it wouldn't be the one that like if you cut your hand, sliced your hand, it wouldn't hmm. cut it as worse. So, so it would have so, a very pointy end that you could stab someone with. So like the curved cheese knife with the fork at the end, so you can cut the cheese and put the fo- put the cheese on your bread. That knife. Yeah. Because it's not truly sharp enough to cut meat or anything, but it is sharp enough to cut cheese and display your cheese correctly on your bread, slice of whatever. And you could still probably do some damage if you chose to yeah. stab someone with it. Yeah, true. Potentially, that could be. I mean, it's, it's it's not my go-to for self-defense, obviously, but <laughs> if it's all as the hand. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I carry one around all the time. <laughs> a cheese knife in the in the back pocket. <laughs> That's not a knife. That's a knife. <laughs> it's an interesting one, isn't it? It is. I, I I'm all with the cheese knife, absolutely on my. <laughs> yeah. Because I was thinking spreader, but I don't think you could stab anyone with it. So next up, Todd Pettengill is backstage and he does an interview with Shawn Michaels. HBK says that everything between he and Hart was settled at WrestleMania 12 when he beat him in a kind of arrogant way, saying Mm. that there is going to be no problems between him and Hart in the main event. Um, He says he will call the action down the middle during the main event. And it also has been we've been it's been revealed that Shawn Michaels uh, also faces some uh, repercussions if he does not, if he favours Bret Hart during the match. So he, Bret Hart has made a a kind of stipulation of the match that if he doesn't win the main event, then he will um, not wrestle in the US again. And Shawn Michaels has said that if he doesn't call the ma- match down the middle, he will not wrestle in the US again. It's all a bit convoluted, that whole thing, and we'll get to it in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> There's video package showing uh, Farouk firing Savio Vega and Crush from the Nation of Domination, and then Crush forming the Disciples of Apocalypse and Vega forming Los Bariquas, which handily leads us in to the next match, which is an eight-man tag match featuring Los Bariquas against the Disciples of Apocalypse, which is a nine-minute match. So the match breaks down and all eight men are in the are in the ring, which eventually results in the nation who have made their way to the ringside uh, get involved. Ahmed Johnson, who briefly was in the Nation of Domination at this moment in his career, hits chains with a Pearl River plunge outside the ring. Perez then pins chains to allow the Bariquas get the victory uh, as the Bariquas leave the ring. Uh, celebrating their victory, the nation and the DOA continue to brawl. Crush then rides his motorcycle to the ring, uh, around the ring, and then rides backstage, leaving the rest of the DOA to be beaten up by the rest of the nation of domination. Amazing. <laughs> James, thoughts on this one? There's nothing more 90s WWF than let's do a race storyline and make the white supremacist team the fan favourites. <laughs> Um, let's let's have two genuine Nazis on the white supremacist team. Because for those of you who don't know, Abel and Crusher, I can't remember. Yeah, Abel and Abel and Skull. Ron and Abel, Don Abel and Skull. Those Ron and Don the Stomper Harris. If you look at their arms, they have these nice floral tattoos, which are cover-ups for uh, two swastika, two SS signs that they had because they were not nice people in their youth i'm sure they're reformed now and have put a lot of money into wrestling no cocks <laughs> but as you can imagine it was like i'm watching this and going yeah this 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 is this is all wrong in on so many levels 
as an actual wrestling match, it, it's going to be horrible because it's an eight-man yeah. tag and it's just all over the place. And none of them... Well, uh, the brief was I quite like because, you know, if you grew up in wrestling in Puerto Rico, you're double hard. You have to be because people will throw concrete at you if you're not any good. So it's a tough learning curve to grow up in, in World Wrestling Council. So as they all managed to survive that and thrive in that particular promotion, I have a feeling they were all pretty reasonable and could go a bit. And I like Savio Vega a lot. He's a good worker. I have no problem with the other guys from a wrestling ability point of view. Um, and yeah, it was it was fine for what it was, but it, it, it just like, this, this is awful. And then Jim Ross was like going on about the nation domination. Oh, if you don't agree with them, then they only listen to you when you agree with them and i'm like this is every black lives matter argument from the right i've heard in the last 12 months yeah. they're foreshadowing the next 25 years of the civil rights movement but not in a good way that's what worried me about this match see if you can, ma- <laughs> see if you can match that old man well, the main thing that bothered me about this match is that it's crap <laughs> I, uh, I didn't think he'd manage it but boy is he ever <laughs> so what you have is you have the doa I don't need to cover any of the uh, the stuff that James has completely stolen my thunder there, by the way. They're, they're not very good, anyway. Their leader is Crush, who is not very good. Uh, you've got the two racists. They're not very good. They weren't very good when they were on their own. And you've got Chains, who I've no idea who he is, but he is awful. There are, There's a few couple of times. He's in the ring maybe three or four times. Never for very long, thankfully. He doesn't know what's going on. You can see it in his eyes. He's trying to sell a headlock at one point, and he doesn't know what's going on. He's as confused by Crush riding away into the night as I am, whilst his pals get beaten up. But Los Bariquas, a lovely old team. I want to see more of them, because they've all got their individual styles. They're wearing the same garb, but they've all got their individual styles. And I thought, you know what? Yeah, we'll have a bit more of that. The nation come down. It's not Pink Nation, let's be honest. Ahmed Johnson's around. But this, to me, feels like a perfect role for Ahmed Johnson, because all he's got to do is shout. And that's kind of all he did. But it actually makes a bit of sense when you're in what they're effectively portraying as an angry black militant group. You want someone who always looks angry and pissed off with the world. And that's what Ahmed Johnson was good at. The one problem is, is what he's not very good at, and it shows with this Pearl River plunge, is he's not very good at wrestling. Because... (laughs) He, to his credit, he does a lot to protect chains. He lays him down like you would a little baby for a nap. That pretty much sums up, to be honest. Basically, Ahmed Johnson, crap at wrestling, good at showing. DOA, not very good. Chains, absolutely awful. Los Bariquas, nice, tidy. Hairy man, can't remember his name. Miguel Perez. Yeah, Miguel Perez, incredibly hairy back. And, yeah, unsurprising finish. You knew it was going to end in a brawl. Like, the way it was built in the... uh, in the video at the start, you're like, this has got a this has got a 12-man brawl at the end. The one surprise was that Crush rode off and made it an 11-man brawl. Maybe he decided that he's not a racist. So we thought, I'm off here because these guys, <laughs> these guys are going to get me in trouble. Well, so there's so much to unpack here. First of all, <laughs> Crush is another wrestler who was gone within three months. Chains is Brian Lee from ECW, but also had headlined SummerSlam three years previous to this because mm. he was the fake Undertaker. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I was surprised that Miguel Perez featured so little in your summary there, old man, because you even messaged me about Miguel Perez's... <laughs> yeah, I um, did. 
breaking of the Albert rule and not so much breaking, smashing through it and crushing it into little yeah. pieces. So he's yeah. absolutely, yeah, he's, he's fallen foul of that rule quite significantly in terms of the nation and whether or not this was the, their peak. So I many, God, when was it? 3rd of August, 2016. I've, I've just searched for it in my Twitter feed. Did my list of the top nation members to ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to count it down now from number 12, right down to number one. Yeah. Twelve. <laughs> so number twelve is Clarence Mason. He was uh, briefly their manager, you may remember. Yeah. Um, number eleven, Ahmed Johnson. So that's how far down on the list he comes. I've got Crush at number ten because I, you know, as much as you dislike chains, I think Crush is absolutely fucking atrocious as well. <laughs> um, then number nine and number eight, we've got JC Ice and Wolfie D, who are PG thirteen, who were involved again with the Nation in the WWF early in their run, but also then went on to make the USWA version of the Nation of Domination. Then we had the seven. Number seven is the Godfather. Number six, Savio Vega. Number five, Farouk. Number four, Mark Henry. Number three, Owen Hart. Number two, The Rock. And number one, of course, yeah. Dino Brown. It's got been. <laughs> <laughs> it, it writes itself, that last bit. Um, so, <laughs> so there we go. Um, yeah, no, God, what can you say about this? It was it was what it was. It was WWF trying to get as much as they possibly possibly could do out of all three of the Harris brothers, because I should say Brian Lee is also brother to Chinga, April and Skull. He's their other brother. Um, Another racist. I don't know about his racist credentials. I'm sure you know, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's something to be said for them. Just as a kind of extra little aside, uh, Ron Harris, who retired from pro wrestling in 2005, uh, began working for a Christian music label. Just just so you're uh, aware of that. He's definitely still a Nazi then. Ron and Don also kept Impact Wrestling afloat when Dixie was reaching financial trouble before the Anthem era. So they kind of kept people employed. Yeah, so it's not a very good match, it is what it is. But as I said, they're, they're just they're just stretching this talent as much as they possibly can because they've got, as we've said, a really thin roster. Although saying that, they've got fucking four of the wrestlers in their roster who just stand around ringside during this one. So, you know, they could have come up with something for them to do, you'd have thought. Um, but anyway, and there's no, there's not even a mention of Rocky Maivia at this point. I guess they were just sort of quietly letting him stay to one side until they were ready to bring him back into something meaningful. I do know Los Bariquas do have like a reunion every five years or so on uh, Puerto Rican indies and they do an angle together and are still quite the in Puerto Rico. So they've, they've managed to milk an entire career out of it. So that's really cool. This uh, this did strike me, and I may be totally wrong, but this did strike me as WWE probably going, Savio, have you got any, got any mates that you could bring in to just like, make a stay when he said, don't you fucking worry about that? <laughs> I did... Um, I did read a little about Los Bariquas because I did not really have much memory of them. Apparently they bloody love to party those lads and I'll bet they went fucking big and they didn't <laughs> even go home. I'll bet, I'll, bet, I'll bet they got the bourbons out, the rich teas, they were having a lovely old time. I bet they were. Um, they, yeah. they, were worried, they weren't fucking around with rich teas. They were chocolate hobnobs all the way. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> do you reckon what they did is they'd invite people into their hotel room and they'd be like, oh, do you want to take a biscuit? And they purposely had a load of rich teas <laughs> around another smaller selection of biscuits, of which there were only four of each. So you've got four Los Bariquas. So what you're effectively doing is you're taking one of the other biscuits that they can then have to see if you're a man enough to take one of their biscuits <laughs> unapologetically. 
I'm pretty sure that was the that was the how you got yeah. into Los Bariquas. I think that's yeah. how it pretty much went. Yeah, I don't know anything about the talent behind Jesus, Jose and Miguel. They may be very good, but ultimately they didn't get any chance to shine in no. WWF and they meant nothing. So. And you've got three lads in DOA who were worse than Crush. And, <laughs> and Randy Savage couldn't get a good match out of Crush. Randy Savage has been dead for how many years? Six, seven years? He'd still get a decent match out of me. <laughs> and he couldn't do it with a crush. <laughs> Pathetic. Just to, just to emphasise how bad the Harris brothers are. Right, moving yeah. on. Video package is up next. Hyping Steve Austin against Owen Hart. Uh, Austin says if he can't beat Owen Hart, he will kiss Owen's ass. Mm, uh, I think nice. that plays into the end here, actually, if I'm honest with you. So this one is a infamous match, I think it's fair to say. It lasts 16 minutes, and the ending is the thing that's infamous about it. So uh, Owen Hart reverses an Austin attempt at a pile driver and then delivers an inverted pile driver, I guess you would call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has him in the tombstone position, but then instead of dropping down to his knees, uh, allows it uh, sits down basically on the pile driver and holds Austin too low, basically giving Austin a severely injured neck, a very, very bad stinger, and effectively shortening his career by by a long, long, long time, I would mm. suggest. And at one point it was even touch and go whether he would return. After that point, Owen does his best to stall for time uh, until eventually Austin manages to crawl over towards Owen and roll him over for you know, as you'd imagine, one of the worst looking roll ups ever, because Austin quite literally can't is is concussed very severely and can't pretty much move any of his limbs by this point. Who wants to go first with this one? Just a quick note on the finish. But uh, the little roll up is still better than anything DOA would be capable of. <laughs> I just I was I thought you were going somewhere else there for a minute because the the match between Sting and Meng ends with the roll up and Tom commented. <laughs> Tom commented that that roll-up was worse than this one in the match yeah. he lost in there in Yeah, I, I think I dispute it to be honest, but yeah. um, they're on a, they're on a comparison, I suppose. So I've got a little bit of housekeeping, Ooh. not for this podcast. So listen to another podcast. I can't remember the name of it. I don't listen to that many either. But it was a few years ago, and they said they were like, oh, so the reason that at the end of Canadian Stampede, Stone Cold drags. One of the hearts, I can't remember who it is, out of the crowd. Be Bruce, and, it, I think. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And starts wailing on him, and it ruins Owen Hart's kind of moment. That was apparently story goes that was going to be Owen Hart's moment to stand in the middle of the ring with the adulation of everyone, and that kind of descended it into a brawl. And Owen Hart, if you like, I don't know whether it's story or not, but it looks quite pissed off in the ring. But I'd heard that that was a reaction from Stone Cold to Owen Hart breaking his neck, which is obviously bollocks. Now, I think it's from, I'm not going to name the podcast, but quite a reputable podcast that has been mentioned on here before. Now, that story's on there, which may play into what people think about that podcast. We'll, we'll leave that out because I don't want to say anything that might piss people off. Well, it can't but, be a reaction because it's before. That's what I'm Precisely. <laughs> that's, that's what I learned from this, is that right. time is one way. 
No, well, <laughs> hang on. Yes. No, hang on, hang on, wait a minute. Not necessarily. Not if you've seen Triple H versus Randy Orton in a fucking three stages of hell match where he pulls yeah. out a sledgehammer from the place he lands. That's like, true. Clearly, Triple H time-traveled then, so this mm. must be time-travel as well. Yeah, anyway, back to the match at hand. Well, there's no time-travel. Yeah, there was time-travel. They'd probably go back and change the end, wouldn't they? I'd hope so. So, <laughs> we're off to a good start. Owen Hart's music, sensational. Absolutely sensational. His music, entrance music, is a thing of beauty, as is his walk to the ring and this, because this was where he'd come down with his slammies and he'd show them off and he's like, yeah, I'm a slammy winner. None of that. He's still got the slammies in hand, but he's walking down intensely to the ring. And then we get arguably the moment of the card, Michael Cole trying to interview Stone Cold. <laughs> a very, a very green Michael Cole. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Austin doesn't even know what to do with him because he won't leave him alone. And it goes on quite awkwardly long, but it's great to see Michael Cole. This is the earliest Austin pop that I can remember hearing on a pay-per-view for the glass smashing. Like, this is a proper blowout. And I also noticed that Austin's neck is enormous, thankfully. That was some I subconsciously noticed when he's walking towards the camera. His neck's massive. Anyway. Onto the match. As predicted, tremendous stuff. They work really well together, as you'd expect from two guys of this level. The crowd are absolutely loving it. And this quite interesting watching outside of Brett Stone Cold, watching a Stone Cold match before he's atypical Stone Cold and seeing just how bloody good he is. And how, to be honest, he's somewhat special, I think. When you're watching this, this is where he's kind of hit his groove. You obviously see it at Canadian Stampede as well, where he really is clearly comfortable doing what he's doing. He knows his character and he just works it brilliant. Owen Hart is obviously absolutely tremendous. The end is absolutely disgusting. Like, it's horrendous to watch. And I think it would be even if the injury doesn't happen because you can see it happening. Like, he's so, when he sits down, he's so far below his, the bottom of his thighs. It's very uncomfortable viewing. But I know how it ends. So I was able to really, really, really enjoy the match. And it may be a bit, not sad, but just made, I think, as we've speculated and other people have, just where it might have gone for Austin if this hadn't have happened. Because he might not have been as big as he was not working the style that he did because people knew exactly what he was going to get and he kind of had to just turn into this brawler and yeah good stuff yeah it's it's an interesting match from the historical point of view uh but the actual content of the match is really really good just watching two wrestlers who know exactly what they're doing telling a story and putting that over and you know what's going on in the match and I forgot how good Austin was at this point. And I forgot how good Owen was as well. I've been an Owen Hart fan since... First time I saw Owen Hart wrestle was 1986. No, 1984, when he was about 18. He came to the UK and he wrestled in a tag match with one of the other Hart brothers. Um, not one of the good ones. And they wrestled <laughs> um, Dave Finley and uh, Rocky Moran on ITV. And it was the first time I saw a German suplex. And it was like the world had come undone. Because <laughs> it, like, it was like, even like Ken Walton was like, I, I can't describe what that is. 
you know and it was like that was amazing so I was a big fan of Owen since then and then watching him again he slowed down because he'd had injuries too and he wasn't the fire he was but he didn't need to be because he could tell a story he'd wrestled everywhere in the world knew exactly what to do to get a crowd in exactly the right place where he went first and it was those kind of guys that really make you realize how important all that um experience they had before they got to the wwe and what made them so great as wwe wrestlers was because they'd wrestled everywhere else they knew how to make a crowd do what they wanted it to do i find it fascinating as well because if you go back 18 months before this steve austin did exactly the same move to masahiro chono and broke his neck and masahiro chono had to change his style and become a brawler and it catapulted him to fame in New Japan Pro Wrestling. He became a much bigger star. And it's people don't talk about Jonah in the same breath as they talk about Austin because Austin became a big Western star. But it always kind of, it, it's just weird to me that Austin did the same thing to Jono and then the same thing happened to him. And it's cruel realities of fate. I don't want to see anyone get injured, obviously. Mm. And I certainly don't want to see wrestlers who are incredibly talented get injured. But it just that bit always fascinates me. We don't talk about it in the same way because, like, you know, Austin has said he was quite angry with Owen for not mm. getting in contact with him after that event. And they eventually made peace before Owen passed away. But also, Austin never called Chono either. You know, there was no recording of him going to see Chono and seeing how he is. It's just, it was just another wrestling match they were on tour. And that's that. So it's, I don't know how I feel about it. Even 25 years later, I, I feel sorry for Austin. And I don't want to see him injured. And it, you're right, it's horrible to watch. But also it's just like these lingering things about what happened to Chono. And you see what both those guys did. And, you know, Chono was a massive star for New Japan. Still is today. Still does commentary for New Japan. And the crowd goes nuts for him. Just sat ringside when they introduce him. And it's he's, he's that level of star. And he's, he's essentially... He was the prototype character for what Stone Cold would become. You know, there's a lot of what Chono was in Stone Cold. It's the coolest wrestler you've ever seen. That's what MVP calls Chono is the coolest wrestler ever. It's a very mixed feeling match, but the actual content of the match up until that last bit was outstanding. Really world class. It, it really was. It was an excellent, excellent match until that moment. And it's a great shame that it ended in the way that it ends because it is it is fantastic the some of the stuff they do is just wonderful it is in my favorite match as i've said many times ever is bret hart versus owen hart and there are there are bits of this match that just remind me of it just is the the, the execution on some of the moves are just textbook they're so crisp and perfect and you feel like there's no chance anyone's got hurt they've just done it and it just looks perfect and they build it really well to a great crescendo which is presumably going to be a very big false finish after Owen Hart does a tombstone pile driver on Austin and then they're going to have some kind of thing that ends with a roll up then the then the pile driver as you said it's horrific I, I can't watch it as soon as I know it's coming I turn away from the screen I can't I just can't watch it um, I remember the picture in WWF magazine of Owen Hart in the air with Austin like in position and his head is clearly you know significantly below his his thighs and I just think, what the fuck are they thinking? Why are they doing this move? No one does this move. No one ever does this move. Like, as you said, especially, James, as you said about Chono and the injury that he suffered from the same move that nobody does, by the way. Like, that was probably once in, like, a, a million occasion that anyone even did that move and did it in that way. Like, you could do the tombstone pile driver. You could do the normal sit-out pile driver where the person's face is facing away from you. But to have them facing towards you and sitting out on it, no one does that move. 
it's like a momentary lapse of i don't know what like why like there's a thing i think austin as you said says talks about him being very upset about it and he's talked about the fact that the original they'd had a conversation about doing a tombstone pile driver but that austin had insisted it was on his it would be on the knees and owen had then said he's more comfortable doing the sit 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 out pile driver and i'm like okay well fine but do it the normal way because had he done it the normal way even if he's holding him a bit low He's got his head's got somewhere to go, but yeah, yeah. The other way, you can't, you've got nowhere to go. You've got you, you you're gonna get hurt. So it's almost like I can't understand it. I can't even understand why they would do it and what they're thinking. And I, and I also it's a time when I don't think WWF any of the wrestlers in WWF were in the mode of trying to do things that would look super cool because that just wasn't what they did back then. Like in these this day at that time, that wasn't a concern. They do it all the time these days. They're always trying to find ways of doing something really super cool in the middle of the ring. They weren't in that mode back then. And I don't think Austin and Owen Hart were those kinds of guys anyway. So yeah, it's just, I just don't understand it. I think that's the thing. I just do not get it. I don't know why this has happened. So the only people I've seen who successfully pulled off that maneuver were Jaggy Yukota and Lioness Asuka. And it worked because Jaggy Okota is significantly shorter than Lioness Asuka. But it was safe because Asuka was a strong person who could hold up the much lighter and much shorter Yokota and get away with it. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, to you said, I'm glad I didn't really want to break it down in such a simple way where it doesn't just to say it doesn't make sense. But it doesn't. There's no. just no need for it. It's a great match as well. Like, yeah. It's a great match without this. They're also not big impact move guys. Austin's got the Luthers press and the stunner. Those are his impact moves. And Owen Hart is a wrestler. Like, it's just very odd. And like you've just raised there, James, it also doesn't work because you can see the height of the lads. Yeah. It's never going to work because Austin's, I think, just a little taller than Owen Hart. So how's it ever going to work? It's just bizarre. I don't even know. Yeah. Like, I don't even know whether they're thinking about Tombstone because it's the Undertaker yeah. move, and he's the world champion at this point. So and, and, why and are you he's thinking in, about that? Yeah, and he's in the next match. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. It and, doesn't. It's just so and you're going to have someone kick out of it. I mean, you also have Brett used the stunt puller pile driver for years. It was a kind of a hard move. You go in, could get away with it. If they'd have done this move, and it had been okay, it'd been safe. It would have had no more impact, in my view than just a normal pile driver that Owen can Owen could do perfectly and he'd done many times before. I just don't yeah, I just can't it's just it just it's like one of those things where like sliding doors moment. Who who has even conceived of this being a tombstone? Why why not just do a normal pile driver? It's really odd. This whole period is a all a whole load of sliding doors. That's why I find fascinating about it. And mm-hmm. this is one of them and we're a couple of months time we're gonna get another one. And I think there's bits of that that i want to talk about during the main event so we'll get to that in a minute so we the main event is between brett Hart and the undertaker and we get a hype video for the two where brett says that if he can't bring the title back to canada he won't wrestle in the u.s again michael says that if he favors the undertaker he also won't fight in the u.s again um it's then explained later on that brett was in his mind was being a little bit sarcastic or at least a little bit was not was not really being literal about that although it has been written into the contract for the match as has austin uh, as has Shawn michaels saying that he will call the match down the middle so it's all a bit this is all a bit strange i don't really understand this bit at all it didn't really make a lot of sense to me as a promo for a match it's pretty crap it's a little flimsy isn't it yeah well and also they don't talk about the undertaker in the title 
<laughs> it's like that, that's why I, I, I put pretty poor promo video from the main event and a ticket in the title barely even mentioned and it's very much a sideshow to Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels mm. and what they're setting up now whether that comes across in the match we'll soon see so before before the main event Bret Hart grabs a microphone and asks the crowd to listen to the Canadian national anthem which then correction plays. he tells them to stand back and listen <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to do him a solid, not mention that, but uh, no certainly such, no chance. No, no such because concerns for old man. You can see in his eyes that he knows what he's just done as well. <laughs> it's brilliant. He then dedicates the match to his fellow Canadians and all his fans across the world who feel the same way about America and Americans as him. So as you say, that as I say, the Canadian national anthem then plays. We then get the main event. For the WWE title, Bret Hart versus The Undertaker with Shawn Michaels as a special guest referee, it is 28 minutes in length. It ends when, after Bret Hart is has got The Undertaker wrapped round the ring post in a sort of sharpshooter-type move, Shawn Michaels comes out to try and break it up, and T- Taker manages to shove Bret Hart off of him, which takes both he and Michaels down to the ground outside the ring. Michaels apparently hurting his ankle in the process. Then back in the ring, Bret Hart grabs a steel chair, hits Taker with it, and Michaels gets back in the ring and counts the fall, And uh, but Taker kicks out at two. Then Michaels sees the chair and confronts Bret Hart over it. As they confront one another, Hart tells Shawn Michaels to fuck off. In fact, he says, fuck you, and then spits on him. Um, HBK then swings the chair at Bret, but Taker, who is behind him, gets the full force of the blow when Bret ducks down. And then Shawn Michaels is forced to make the cover as Bret pins Taker to win the world championship. After the match, Taker um, chases after Shawn Michaels and British Bulldog Owen Hart and Brian Pillman join Bret in the ring. Oh man, thoughts on this one? Shit. (laughs) My word, what a fucking piece of work this is. It was always going to be good, but this is magnificent. It's just got everything that you want. So Shawn Michaels, I'll go through them in turn. Shawn Michaels is amazing. Absolutely amazing because he is only noticeable when he has to be. He doesn't get involved when he doesn't need to and it's not going to enhance things. And he's really good at that here because the finish is, I wouldn't say a genuine surprise, but it's so well put together that it feels organic. And there's a little bit like when members of the Heart Foundation come down to the ring. Shawn Michaels is frustrated enough that he takes a while to get them out and then he keeps watching them. And they've got the great camera angle where they're looking at him and you can see what Bret Hart's doing in the background. And then you've got Paul Bearer comes down and they're referencing, obviously, his heel turn on The Undertaker at the previous year's SummerSlam. So they're still bubbling that under. They're bubbling the Kane stuff. Bret is, I think, for me, my viewing, this is peak Bret Hart, just because he is able to show that he just doesn't give a shit about anything. And he is predictably phenomenal in the match like everything he does is absolutely tremendous and he makes him an undertaker as i said about the promo video like it's not really it's kind of a sideshow the the actual match is a sideshow to what's going on between brett and Shawn michaels but they make the match mean so much because they're so good together and they're putting in so much effort and they're putting so much importance in everything that's going on in the ring i mean it's three of the best wwf guys arguably ever 
it's just tremendous. The end is phenomenally done. And then Bret Hart tops it off by getting handed the title, turns around away from the hard camera, but he turns around to the crowd and we're obviously booing the shit out of him. And he just shrugs his shoulders and then raises the title. That's beautiful stuff. <laughs> it was it was 28 minutes. Would have watched another half hour easy. <laughs> what about you, James? Would you watch another half an hour? Yeah, easy. I would. <laughs> 1997 Bret Hart and Undertaker. I would watch another half hour of. Um, yeah. <laughs> what now? Now you wouldn't. <laughs> not, not now. No. <laughs> By an age of 137 or whatever. Yeah. Um, no, I. Yeah, it was really, really good. And there, there was a couple of things. Jerry Lawler did redeem himself by saying something which was good foreshadowing. And he said at the beginning of the match, Shawn Michaels only ever wants the attention on him and he will try and get on himself throughout. And that was like, that is the one insightful comment you've made in this entire three-hour show. <laughs> you've earned your money. Now shut up <laughs> so I can watch this match. But yeah, no, I liked so much this match. And... I would argue it's probably Brett's last great match. If, I mean, the Montreal Screwjob was a great match, but it was overshadowed by what went on at the Montreal Screwjob. And I don't think any of his WCW stuff, which potentially could have been as good as this, was as good as this because he just didn't have a guy with that level of presence that The Undertaker has. And it's, yeah, it, it was just so mechanically good, such a well-told story. There's so many moving parts in this match, but it doesn't feel overbooked. You know, if someone comes down to ringside in a championship match nowadays, there's 15 things that can go wrong, and they will go wrong, and it will make you feel like, ugh, whereas this didn't. No one outstayed their welcome when they came down to ringside. They did their bit. They got out the way. They let the match breathe. And the the, the timing of that finish was so perfect as well. It's just really hard to make that look believable, but you absolutely could. You absolutely were in the moment. And you believe that Brett just got out of the way in the nick of time. There was innovative stuff as well. Brett's first, I think it was maybe his first, or certainly very early ring post sharpshooter, which he, mm. which he tried, which isn't as successful as the ring post figure four because you can't really get behind it and do stuff with it. It just doesn't quite work as well, but it still looks vicious and it still looks like an incredible maneuver. So yeah, no, this this was really, really impressive. Really enjoyed this match. And as good as I remembered it, which, you know, it stands up still. Like you could stick this on a pay-per-view anywhere today and it would be just as good now and just as vital to the growth of the company as well. So, yes, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing match. It's really, really good. What I love most about it, you're right there, is that there are lots of other people involved. First of all, Shawn Michaels is the special guest referee. We've got the Hart Foundation come down at one point. We've got Paul Bearer come down at one point. But actually, all of it adds to the intrigue around this match because, as Old Man says, there's you know you start with... The, the concept that actually it's Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels who don't like each other. They really don't like each other. And that's really the the feud or the personal um, issue that is taking a center stage during this contest. But what happens is that the WWE do a great job. Everybody does a great job in terms of booking this. So that actually your mind is taken away from the sense that Michaels might be the thing that makes a difference. So if you were just going to do it really, really um, obviously, you'd, you'd you would never make it so that you'd never attempt to distract people from the fact that Shawn Michaels is the referee. But Paul Bearer coming down kind of and adds in this kind of intrigue of, oh, is it actually going to be Paul Bearer who makes a difference to the end of this match? Is it going to be him or Kane even that we have heard about so far at this point? Will they make the difference and stop the Undertaker from being champion? Uh, and then when he's ejected, 
it's the Heart Foundation that come down. And suddenly you're like, well, okay, is it Heart- the Heart Foundation that's going to make a difference? Are they going to be why the Undertaker loses? Or And then getting rid of them is what allows Brett to bring the chair in as well for the first time because they because Shawn Michaels is no longer with them. So even all those little bits are just perfect. Even Jerry Lawler, the bit you just said about with Jerry Lawler saying Shawn Michaels needs to be the centre of attention. How many times, especially in WWE, but I'm sure in nearly all wrestling, do you hear some one of the commentators almost foreshadow but give away the end by saying, yeah. oh, I don't know, for example, oh, Brett, Shawn Michaels is definitely going to cost Bret Hart the match here. Because that's what ordinarily the Hill commentator would do, would try and say the contrary thing to what's going to happen at the end. So it's so transparent. It's unbelievable. Jerry Lord doesn't do that. He just says that he's going, he he just intimates that Shawn Michaels is going to make the difference. He doesn't say which way. He doesn't try to predict what will happen. He just says, you know, Shawn Michaels is going to be the center of attention come the end of the match. And then the Michaels chair shot at the end. I, I think it's just perfect. Because I've I watched it three or four times. They show the replay again and again and again during the the broadcast, and I've never seen a better missed chair shot in my mm. life. Mm. You watch it again. Look at his eye line the entire way through. He does not see that he's going to miss Bret Hart until he's hit the Undertaker. It is perfect, and he do, and the reason he's able to do it is because when Bret spits on him, he turns away in disgust and anger, and almost like trying to keep his because he's remember he's got the stipulation where he could he could be stopped from wrestling in the U.S. again if he helps the Undertaker basically, and so he's he's doing everything. He turns away almost to try and stop himself in the rage that's built up in him from Bret Hart saying "fuck you" and spitting in his face. To him then kind of and as a consequence he's turned away so as he's swinging the chair he's not looking where the chair's going it's just perfect it's, I, I don't know how they managed to we they've tried to do this again and again and again since and never got it so perfect they've yeah. done all kinds of things like this where someone misses the chair shot they're trying to hit someone else and they hit the person they have never done it this well i don't think it's just absolutely phenomenally executed but it also goes to meet my overall feeling about what i said at the beginning which is that wwe was in such a good artistic place at this point because think of everything that's going on around this match so first of all the Undertaker's is the champion Bret Hart's challenging him for the belt he's got a massively personal feud with Shawn Michaels going on but what they're going to do here is sideline Michaels into a feud with the Undertaker for the next couple of months until they can get the Shawn Michaels Bret Hart match they want at the Survivor Series now I don't know what their plan was going to be and we'll we'll go into that in a minute because I've got some interesting things I want to talk about that but the fact that they were able to sort of skew Shawn Michaels into this feud with The Undertaker for a couple of months, coming out of this match where it feels like the whole thing is building towards Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart, it's just, it's just brilliant. And in the meantime, they're maintaining that storyline thread of Kane and his emergence onto the scene. It's just wonderful. This is, this is top, top-notch storytelling for the main event across, you know, from pay-per-view to pay-per-view to pay-per-view, which... It, the kind of stuff that, you know, I don't think that WWF have been capable of doing for a very long time. But back then, it, it just it was just marvellous. And they were stretching, as I said, getting the most that they could out of a very small pool of main eventers here and doing a cracking job as they did it. So, yeah, I just think it's everything about it's really, really good. Everything about it is just fantastic. And I agree, this is peak Bret Hart. Not necessarily in terms of in the ring, but just mm. everything. The whole thing mm. Bret's doing at this point is perfect. He's never been better on the mic than he is during 1997. No. He's never been able to elicit the kind of reactions that he manages, certainly heel reactions that he manages during this period, as he does when um, during this year. And he never, in my opinion... 
never looked as invested in anything as he does at this point. Now, sort yeah. of say that he didn't look invested in the past because he did. He always was believable. But there was never a time where he didn't feel absolutely like he meant every word of everything he said and meant everything he did. He is just on absolute fire during this year. It's, it, it is his peak year, in my opinion. And funnily enough, it is then the peak just disappears literally at the end of the year as a consequence obviously of his own motivation going because of what happens at the montreal screw job so yeah just just phenomenal there was as i've been kind of alluding to i want to kind of talk about as we said we're three months three and a bit months away from the montreal screw job and i don't want to talk about that in terms of that itself because that's probably a conversation for another time and i'm sure at some point we'll cover that show but it's one the what i wanted to talk about here was when the decision was made to put the belt on brett and when the decision was made that we can't afford Brett anymore, because if you if the decision that they can't afford Brett anymore comes before SummerSlam, then they surely would not have put the world title on him, because then that's just that's just asking for, for trouble, isn't it? Mm. But having seen what happened to Austin, the guy that you're effectively learning up to be the top babyface star for the next however many years, you've just seen that his career is now in jeopardy as a consequence of the injuries just suffered. How do you make the decision after that point that you can no longer afford Brett? Isn't it incredibly risky to suddenly go, fuck, Mm. Austin, Austin might be gone forever. And yet I'm also willing to let Brett go at a point when we already are really low on the ground of main event guys. It just feels so strange that they don't seem to all this timeline just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. And I can't make head nor tail of it. And I just don't understand why, unless the WWF really were in the kind of financial difficulty that at one point it was reported they were. And therefore, Vince quite literally could not afford to pay Bret Hart the money they were paying him, I don't understand why you'd make that decision in the wake of this show. I just don't get it. If you watch the wrestling from with Shadows film, which obviously like documents this period at the same time, it doesn't become any clearer then either when you no. watch it. You like you there's the conversation Brett has with Vince over the phone and he writes the, the amount of notes he takes. I, I can't imagine how many pages he filled with conversations with Vince down here. <laughs> and I'd like to see those notebooks. But you know, it doesn't make it doesn't make it any clearer because you're right. It is like there was a massive investment. Was it 22 million over 20 years or something like that, wasn't it? So they'd be paying him a million dollars. Yeah, they were paying him a million dollars a year for the next 20 years to be a representative of the WWE or WWF as it was then. That's a lot of money, but it, it's not really when you think about it in terms of promotion and and long term investment and the things they could do with Brett in the long term. But yeah, I don't know. I The match doesn't look like it is necessarily something they did on the fly. They could have changed the result that day when they found out that Austin wasn't going to be the long-term bet he they thought he could be. And those are the guys are good enough to do it, to make that decision work and make it look realistic. But equally, it looks like this is a long-term, long-term storyline and it's it was kind of still the classic era of Vince booking. He only ever thought about WrestleMania. That's as far he, he, that's as far as ahead as he thought. You know, I, what's my main event for WrestleMania? I'm going to reverse book from there. And he was still in that mode. I think that is why I'm so like incredulous as to why they made the decision then that they couldn't afford him. Because yeah. if you're worried about Austin, then your only main event of WrestleMania next year is Brett Sean again. That's the only thing you can do. You've got nothing else. There's no one else on the show that could be in the main event of WrestleMania against Shawn Michaels. Maybe the Undertaker, but like, there's no one. If Austin is not 
fit. And that is also the match that you go to, isn't it? Because it's just been the main event of WrestleMania. It was a main event of WrestleMania 12. They couldn't do the rematch of WrestleMania 13 because Shawn Michaels lost his smile. So presumably that would be the alternative to to Austin versus Michaels is Brett versus Michaels. And it, but they let they say they can't. I, I just don't get it. <laughs> That's why I find it so fascinating. Well, and what's so strange about it is that you've got some of the dirt on this roster, and yet you've got a guy who I mean, I think he's was he 41 at this time? Something like that, like, yeah. This is Brett. Oh, you look at him, he's still going, he's still going absolutely fine. <laughs> he's still he has a 28 minute match, like he's it's not like he's an old man, and you've got a guy who could work with absolutely anybody on that roster and drag them through at least a semi-decent match. It was mystifying at the time. It's mystifying when you watch Wrestling with Shadows. It's mystifying when you hear anything about it. And I think we will talk about it, as I said, when we do this, do that show whenever it is, and it won't be this year, I don't think, but we'll do it at some point. But the truth is, is that this night is so mm-hmm. key in that story because this is where Brett wins the belt that he yeah. then, they then have to get off of him. And it just feels so strange. And I just don't, I, I said, I don't, I just don't get it. Um, I, I think if I always thought, put it this way, I always thought that the reason they did it was because they decided that they couldn't have Brett and Sean at the same time. They were just too disruptive. And Sean was the younger guy. And Sean was perhaps at the time, maybe regarded as a slightly better wrestler. Although I think time has maybe in terms of looking back at that point in time, you might, I would argue the opposite. Now, uh, I think at the time, maybe people thought Michaels was slightly more valuable to the, to the WWE in the long run. But thinking about this at this point, as I say, with, with Austin in the position he is, I just can't understand why, at least you wouldn't delay it. You just go, you know what, let's just keep him on board for six months until we know we're through WrestleMania. That's the bit I don't get. The only issue that they have is the way that they book this match. They can't have any other result. So because why you would do that? They've booked themselves into it as well because they've yeah. because they've had Brett in the mm. stipulation that if he doesn't win, he won't wrestle in the US again. So that's another issue they've got here. And it was what I was thinking about earlier on. I didn't actually say in the end, but I think that's why Owen doesn't just pin Austin in the previous match. Because again, Austin has said he will kiss Owen Hart's ass if he loses. So they're in a position where they can't they can't even call it on the fly and have him lose. Yeah. Like which would have made so much more sense than having him try to do the roll up. But they can't. They've they've put this stipulation in place, which means he has to win. It's kind of the best in terms of matches and then the worst in terms of the book corner that they put themselves into in two matches, isn't it? Really odd. Brett was considered the safe pair of hands. He was a safe draw. He was as you said, Sam, he was a great wrestler. He could have a good match with anyone. He was probably a bigger draw than Sean was in the short run. So Sean probably had more potential in the long run. So, but again, it doesn't make any sense from the way this match was booked. Yeah. Uh, as I say, sliding doors all over the place. Mm. Brett and Undertaker, yeah, the Undertaker could have won and we'd never had them on to a screw job. Austin doesn't get injured against Owen Hart. Who knows what happens as a consequence of that? Mm. Uh, Montreal screw job doesn't happen. Who knows what happens as a consequence of that? Shawn Michaels doesn't get injured at the Royal Rumble 1998 and doesn't lose four years of his career. Who knows what happens there? Yeah. It's just ridiculous. It's all over the place at this point. Mm. And what's more incredible is that whilst all this was going on, or in the immediate aftermath of all this going on, WWF actually starts beating WCW in the ratings war, which should never have happened. It should never <laughs> have been. It should never have been able to happen. It, it, again, it goes back to something I don't really want to don't really want to circle back to this but it goes back to me thinking the wwe's incompetence is un off the page is absolutely off the page they should never have been allowed allowed wwf to come back at them so quickly so 
let's get our overall thoughts on the show our mvp of the night our match of the night and our rating out of 10 uh sorry with you old man well i need to make a note because this will feed into my runner um on the commentary on the main event jr tremendous and vince lets him take the lead i feel in the commentary he's pretty excellent on here so my mvp is actually vince because I think he manages that three-way team really, really well. And he isn't as, oh, oh, as I said earlier. Uh, he isn't doing that. And he lets Ross in particular. And he also lets, I think, I think he lets Lawler do his thing. His thing isn't very good at this point. And he isn't a great commentator, but he's about to be very good for a few years in his role with JR. You've got two... Very good matches with Owen Hart, Austin, the opener, so Triple H, Mankind, and then one excellent match, which is the main event. And there's there's a lot going on in the main event, as we've just discussed, with all the stories, all the outside interference and everything like that. And they managed that so well. I mean, that's match of the night. I think that would probably be match of the night on most cards. The middle stuff isn't quite so good, but I didn't care. Like I said, like when you had the opener, that was good enough that I probably wouldn't have cared about the rest of the card <laughs> anyway. And then you have the two last matches, and you'd say, oh, what more do I want? Nothing. Well, I won't want Austin to break his neck. That would be the only thing. So I'm giving the show an 8 out of 10. If the middle stuff hadn't been so drossy, <laughs> it would have probably got a 9. Uh, I think it ain't fair. Well done, lads. James. Okay. Well, I, I really enjoyed the show. I think it was an interesting slice of wrestling history, and there was more to it in the long run than we possibly knew at the time. And looking back at it now with hindsight, it's actually a lot more interesting than you than you realise because there's so many different things happen on the show. I think my MVP would be Mankind for that opening match because he was just superb as a get himself over, get Triple H over, get the crowd going, tell a story. He did so many different things in that match to make it work. And that was kind of the ideal seed to build a big baby face run around. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, just as a general roundup things that I haven't mentioned, Jerry Lawler's mild obsession with Steve Austin kissing Owen Hart's ass during that match. Yes. I'd never realized that the King enjoyed talking about rimming so much. Yeah, he says that he's going to French kiss his derriere. Yes. At one point, which is a wonderful visual. <laughs> it is just like you could imagine him commentating on gay porn. And yeah. that, that was something in my head that I never thought I'd see uh, or hear it indeed. Now I think back at it some many years later. I <laughs> uh, also missed Shawn Michaels' referee shorts. Uh, yes. Yes, he didn't wear the short shorts that... He would referee uh, in the main event of the FMW ninth anniversary show the following year, Mr. Ganeske versus H in a street fight, and he wore the shorts there, which is a bizarre card because Shawn Michaels is refereeing the main event of a different company's show and doing all his promos in English to a Japanese crowd, which is a bit weird. Uh, as far as my match of the night, I have to go with the main event. I have thought about this. I was going through this and I was like, yeah, you kind of not, you can't not give it to the main event because it, it's exactly right. It's what a half-hour match should be. There's plenty of story there. It advances both wrestlers 
careers. The title seems important. It's a championship match. Even the referee gets over in this match. You can't say that very often. Um, so, yeah, it has to be the main event as my match of the night, really. And I would give this show seven and a half out of ten, just because, like you said, the middle does sag and Republican governors, no, we don't need that in wrestling. Yeah. Well, I've got some bad news for you, James, because we don't allow half scores on this podcast. Oh, it's got to be. Oh, oh now. Oh, you've told me now. <laughs> I'll go with eight then and be generous. Fair enough. No, that that, that makes sense. So, yeah, um, for me, I was, I've got to be honest, James, I was very close as well to like, is it a seven? Is it an eight? You yeah. boys have actually talked me around to making it an eight because I yeah. had originally, I did originally. <laughs> I honestly had already written in a seven before we did the recording, but I've actually changed my mind. I think the quality of the main event, the quality of the Intercontinental Time match, and the quality of the opener is such that it really doesn't, like you said, old man, it really doesn't matter that they are, the, the middle bit is not very good at all. Um, and actually, you know, I say it's not very good at all. I didn't think the Goldust Pillman match was that bad. I didn't really think that the Shamrock Bulldog match was that bad. It just had a bit of a poor finish. And I didn't think the Godwins versus Legion of Doom was anywhere near as bad as I thought it might be. So, yeah, I, I have to give it some credit. So for me, yeah, an eight out of ten as well, which gives it a, an average score of eight overall. My man of the match, uh, man of the match, man of the night, MVP of the night, whatever you want to call him, Bret Hart, easily just such a great performance at a peak in his career, possibly the peak in his career. This night might even be the peak, his fifth world championship in the WWF, um, and after which things go downhill from him pretty much constantly. As you said, James, possibly the last great match he has which is really interesting, an interesting uh, thought and perspective, because you're probably right there. Um, and yeah, match tonight's got to be the main event. There's nothing. The other two matches are very, very good, but you can't really give it to Austin versus Owen Hart because of the ending. And you can't, you know, you, you sympathize with both of them ultimately for the ending of that match. But but it is still a box and it doesn't it doesn't really help the match itself. And we can be perhaps a little bit blase about it now because we know we know that austin is perfectly healthy as he is now so it's not such a big deal and yeah the main event the, the opening match is cracking as well but i don't think anything's quite as good as that main event so excellent stuff now i did say that we would do the top 10 and the bottom 10 10 countdown i will very quickly run through that now uh, because we've still got the game as well to go so we really yeah. are pushing this, stuff here <laughs> we, we have pushed teams into overtime we have this this is a second marathon because we did the true finish show last night with four of us re- reviewing slammiversary and we went over two hours and we were all very angry by the end <laughs> <laughs> are, are you as angry tonight no no I'm, I'm chilled and relaxed tonight you guys are calming me so let's start with the bottom 10 uh, shows we've covered so far. So we have got in 30th place, ultimately, at the moment, WCW sold out 1997, our second ever episode. And I don't think we're ever going to be how low that's, that's got to no. a rating of two, an average rating of two. <laughs> WWE Fastlane 2017 is at 29 with 2.67. Um, it's got an equal rating as two WCW shows, Slambury 2000 and Bash at the Beach 1995 also coming in at 2.67. 26th place is WWE Judgment Day 2007 and WWF Saturday Night's main event number one are both 3.33 averages. 
Uh, 24th is WW Spring Stampede 93, which is the Legends reunion, which had that awful, slow, horrible bit during the middle. Um, WWE Vengeance 2004, Living Dangerously 99 ECW show, and WWE Royal Rumble 1995 are all on 4.33 as an average rating. So those are the bottom 10. Top 10, WWE Payback 2016, 6.33 rating. WWF No Way Out 2000, 6.67 uh, also on that same number, WWE Saturday Night's Main Event 15, which was from March 1988, and WWE Spring Stampede 1994, which I will continue to maintain as a ridiculously low average thanks to Tom's stupid rating. <laughs> <laughs> we should have had James on for that one. It got like 9.7, I expect. <laughs> um, sixth is WWE Royal Rumble 1992, 7.33. Then we've got today's show, WWE SummerSlam 1997, 8. Rating of eight is the fifth best rating because the top four all have 8.33 averages. They are NXT TakeOver Chicago 2, WWE WrestleMania 30, WrestleMania 19, and ECW One Night Stand 2005. So there we go. Those are the top 10. If you've made it this far, you might want to make it a little further by giving us a review or a rating wherever it is that you're listening to this. Or if you prefer, recommend us to one of your wrestling fan friends, current or lapsed, and we'd love to give, get them on board. James, tell everyone a little bit about where they can find you and your podcasts. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find The Troopany Show at Troopany Show on Twitter and on Facebook, The Troopany Show, and on Patreon, The Troopany Show. Uh, podcast goes out every Monday. We have the Wrestling Rewind when Dara has got it produced and set to be, which is usually about Wednesday or Thursday. It's a floating time schedule with them. They're kind of free-flowing guys. They're a bit hippie wrestling review um and we do shows that are about japanese wrestling history of wrestling uh we cover new japan we cover noah we cover uh tokyo joshi pro um we've done all sorts of stuff with that all sorts of wrestling promotions and um yeah we we cover modern wrestling but historical wrestling as well and you can find our guide to japanese wrestling if you don't know anything about japanese wrestling we've got over 70 hours of information and chat about that too um, as I said, I've said many times before, but James and the True Penny Show is about the best place you can go for any coverage of podcasting Japanese stuff. It is some some excellent stuff and it's very much recommended. We move on to the game, the the really important stuff of the day. Mm. <laughs> Finally, that bloody shit's out of the way. <laughs> um so today I'm the host, as I said, and uh, James is stepping in for Tom. Today's contest. So WWE have just recently released on Peacock and on the network their top 50 tag teams of all time. Oh, wow. Uh, so I am asking you to name the teams that were involved in that <laughs> list. As I say, there are 50 tag teams. All of them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> so uh, I think we'll probably let you go first, James, just as you are obviously our guest. So you get the first guess. OK, the Dudley boys. Good, good, uh, good start. They are number five on the list. Uh, the Hardy Boys. They are number two on the list. Uh, Heart Foundation. Heart Foundation are number three on the list. Getting the big hitters in early. Love it. <laughs> uh, the Quebecers. Oh, what are you doing? <laughs> are you sure you want to go there? They're on it, but, you know, I'm sure. <laughs> so full disclosure, I watched the first 10 minutes. Of the first episode, <laughs> and the Quebecers were on there, and uh, I got so bored I turned it off. 
They are 48 on the list, so yes, uh, that makes yeah. sense. Um, British Bulldogs. Yes, number 10 on the list. Shocking. Uh, the Rockers. The Rockers. Uh, let's have a look. Yes, they are number 14. Demolition. Demolition, number 11. That's scandalous. Uh, <laughs> LOD. Legion of Doom are number 6. Powers of Pain. Oh, I think that's a brave shout, that one. <laughs> I'm afraid not. I'm afraid oh. not, James. No powers of pain. That was a. I mean, it was a difficult one because I was leaning into the fact that this was also a WWF list, a WWF eified list, and therefore yeah. never going to favour you. Oh man, I'm sure you've got more to come. Well, I want to say that James has done Tom a very good service by saying powers of pain. <laughs> yes, yeah. Tom loves the powers of pain, so we'd be very proud. To hear that. So I had rated RKO. Rated RKO are 40. Um, Edge and Christian. Edge and Christian are four. And then I kind of stopped thinking about them because I had a couple in the bank. So I've got the two man power trip. I'm not sure they will be because I think they were only together for about six weeks before Austin got injured. They're not on the list, I'm afraid. Uh, How about. The Can-Am Connection. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, they were 51, mate. They didn't, didn't oh. quite <laughs> So I'll go through them from 50 down to number one, because you didn't get number one, by the way. So 50 are the Bushwhackers. 49 are Too Cool. Then it was the Quebecers, as you said. 47, Smoking Guns. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. 46, Strike Force of Tito and Ricky Martel. Oh. Uh, 45 is the Head Shrinkers. 44, Kane and X-Pac. Um, 43, Batista and Ric Flair. They had to get Ric Flair on the list somewhere, didn't they? <laughs> 42, Eminem. Uh, 41, The Nasty Boys. 40 were rated RKO. 39, Paul London and Brian Kendrick. 38, a DIY. Um, mm. Remember, this is a WWE list, James. Yeah, yeah. Can't remember this. There's, there's people there I've never heard of, so yeah, obviously. 37, World's Greatest Tag Team, Team Angle. Um 36, Money, Inc. 35 are Jera Show. Jericho and the Big Show. 34, The Natural Disasters. 33, The Street Profits. Not sure about that, to be honest. They're still a bit, uh, maybe in a few years, but they're just yeah. not there yet, are they? let's be honest. 32, The Briscoe Brothers. 31, Luke Harper and Eric Rowan. 30th, British Bulldog and Owen Hart. 29, John Morrison and The Miz. 28, Cesaro and Sheamus. 27, Team Hell No. Well, they had to get Dan O'Brien in the list somewhere, didn't they? <laughs> 26, Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. They were dreadful. Oh. It's not about quality of matches, James. You've got to remember, this <laughs> it's a kayfabe list, James. Oh, kayfabe list. WWE made list. I'm not a team I come to in my head when I think of great WWF tag teams, <laughs> I must admit. 25th, Los Guerreros. 24, the APA. 23, the Blackjacks. Not the new Blackjacks, the originals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 22 are the Shield, which I don't know if they're a tag team, in fairness, but you know, maybe they're just meaning Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins because they were the tag champs at one point. 21, DX, Shawn Michaels and Triple H. Well, they had to get Triple H in there somewhere, didn't they? Um, 20th, the Undisputed Era, which again could be any number of different combinations of teams. 19, the Soul Patrol, Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas. Well, they had to get The Rock's dad in there somewhere, didn't they? Uh, 
talk about shoehorn and they're 19 they're number they won 19. they won the titles once yes well they're only one position below professor toro tanaka and mr fuji who won it about 70 billion times yeah them, um, them two i could understand yeah 17 are the steiner brothers 16 <laughs> the rock and sock connection well they had to get the rock in there somewhere <laughs> F- 15 the wild samoans uh 14 the rockers 13 the mega powers yeah 12 the valiant brothers 11 demolition 10 british bulldog then we've got nine the brothers of destruction kane and the undertaker eight is the new age outlaws seven are the usos then there was legion of doom dudley boys edge and christian heart foundation hardy boys and number one any thoughts Hmm. if it's not the dudleys it's going to be so obvious i'm going to be offended I don't, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know how obvious, but New Day rocks. New, new day. day rocks. Yes, oh, yes. They are number one. In fairness, oh. they've won the belts about 400 times. So Yeah. And it, it, I, I'm assuming it's Jack and Jerry Briscoe, not the other Briscoes who never worked for WWE. It's not, it's not Jay and Mark. <laughs> no, it's, it's Jerry and uh, Jack, yes, the Briscoe yes. brothers. So there you go. The game and old man's, old man's made profit out of, uh, out of these guests. These guest appearances. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, was on a, Tom was on a hot streak as well prior to this, so um, he's going to yeah. be absolutely seething right now. So <laughs> Sorry, that Tom. Is, <laughs> so that <laughs> is all of our business for the day wrapped up. Uh, old man, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you very much. I'm, uh, I'll be honest, I'm glad I lotioned up all my crevices because that was a hot one. <laughs> but I don't want you guys to be thinking about that. I just want you guys to remember Kempatera. And indeed, James, thank you for joining us uh, and being a guest on our show this week. Thank you so very much. It has been an an honour and a wonderful (laughs) evening spending it with you guys. Oh, that's lovely. That is lovely. And on that note, I will bring a close to proceedings. We'll be back, though, next week again with another SummerSlam uh, episode. But until then, take care.